Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. It is a busy Monday morning here, quite a weekend. We have five things to know for this Monday, March 13th. One, the federal government is now stepping in to calm financial panic over the failure of two U.S. banks. Regulators announcing that everyone who had money with Silicon Valley Bank and now Signature Bank will have access to all of their money, no matter how much they had. This morning, President Biden is going to address the nation publicly about it. Also at the Oscars, everything, everywhere, all at once, stealing the show, winning Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress. Also overnight, North Korea saber-rattling once again, this time with a missile test launched from a submarine. The move comes as the U.S. and South Korea begin joint military exercises. And you know this name, of course, Michael Cohen, set to testify today in a case that could lead to criminal charges against the former president, Donald Trump. Cohen expected to appear before a Manhattan grand jury The panel has been hearing evidence involving Trump's alleged role in hush money payments made to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. And get this, March Madness, your March Madness bracket. Well, it's officially set for the men's NCAA tournament. The one seeds, Kansas, Houston, Purdue, and some Alabama, something like that. (laughs) Never heard of them. Never heard of them. (laughs) CNN This Morning starts right now. I tell you, I was in Washington this weekend. The collapse of SVB was all that anyone could talk about. I mean, yeah. lawmakers there are very worried about what was going to happen. The White House was working throughout the weekend trying to figure out what they were going to do to try to, to stem the panic that was coming. Oh, four decades to build this bank, 48 hours for it to collapse, and now followed by Signature Bank, which is not just a bank to Silicon Valley. I think the question this morning is... What can be done to make sure this doesn't happen again? But it's not the same as 2008. It's I just want to, I want to start with, <sighs> seriously, because it, it, look, they got some assurance from the government that everything would be, that, that people would get their money out of it. But still, there's so much that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Most people want to know, is my money safe? You know, am I involved in this, even though I may not directly have, you know, some involvement with this bank? And also, they're still trying to figure out if they're going to be taken over by someone else. Yeah. And so to avoid a domino effect. Yeah. yeah. Depositors so far, will be OK. Thank goodness. thank goodness. So far, no one's acquired them yet. This morning, as you all know, this morning, President Biden is going to be addressing the nation for the first time publicly since all of this happened. That comes after administration officials worked throughout the weekend, as I was noting, scrambling to stem what they feared was going to be contagion from the Silicon Valley bank collapse. On the line for the president this morning, potential economic and political fallout because a second bank has now also closed its doors abruptly. That came after regulators warned that keeping it open could threaten the entire financial system's stability. Signature Bank becoming in part a victim of the fallout that ensued after Friday. All of that led to an extraordinary move by the federal government yesterday to step in and guarantee that this morning customers of both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank will have access to all of their money starting today. 
Feds are trying to prevent more bank runs and help companies continue to make payroll and stay afloat. We have this covered from all angles this morning. Let's start with how we got here, though, and what to expect as the markets are going to be opening shortly. CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, is here with us. Christine, okay, if you weren't paying attention on Friday afternoon, you were off work or on a trip, break down exactly what happened here with SVB. The anatomy of a collapse of a big bank and the anatomy of a rescue from the federal government. Let's look at how we got here. First of all, what is SVB. It is the epicenter of tech startups, venture capital, Silicon Valley Bank. It is the 16th largest bank, or it was, in the United States. And this is really uh, the, the oxygen for technology. The technology sector really goes through uh, SVB. So a very important uh, bank here. By the end of 2022, it had $175 billion in total deposits. And here is the anatomy of the bank run, right? This is how much money it had at the end of the year. Just on Thursday, there were $42 billion in withdrawals from depositors, right? So something happened here where people wanted to take their money out and this bank unraveled here. So what happened? Why did they get there? Well, this is a company that for years took deposits in the good times when interest rates were very low and it grew and grew and grew. And those deposits grew and it put that money into long dated treasuries, into treasuries, safe, super safe uh, treasuries, right? So this is how much they had. At the end of 2022, $128 billion uh, worth of, of treasury. Look, that is amazing how much it, it gained. But then as things started to go south, when interest rates were rising, those were less valuable. And the company actually was selling those treasuries at a loss. When that word got out, people got nervous. The stock in the bank started to decline. Depositors started to withdraw their uh, their money. They were also withdrawing their money because technology, that sector, was in a downturn, right? And so instead of putting money into the bank, uh, depositors were taking money out of the bank, and the bank could not sustain it. Come to the rescue of the United States government. The FDIC is going to insure up to $250,000 in normal times, and now you're going to have this facility so that above that level, everyone will be made whole. Not the bondholders and not the stockholders of the bank, we should be co- point out, but the people who have their deposits in that bank. Also, Signature Bank. This is the other, the other shoe to drop this weekend. This is a bank that specializes in services for law firms. It also got into big trouble. The government will also back the depositors there. So a really important weekend of developments. You guys, this could have been a very different morning, a very different morning if we didn't have the Treasury and the Fed working all weekend to try to make sure that folks were made whole. And and I'll say it, this is because interest rates rose so dramatically, something was going to break in the economy, right? And this is what broke, guys. And that comes as the Fed chair is only warning that federal, that interest rates are going to continue to rise. Christine Romans, we'll wait to see what the markets say when they open. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about what Washington is going to do, what the president is expected to say when he speaks this morning. MJ Lee is at the White House. MJ, you know, It's interesting the point that was just made about something was going to break, but this is not what people were talking about. People were not talking about the rapid interest rate increases resulting in in part in bank collapses. So what will the president say? Do we know? Yeah, well, Poppy, you know, we have seen over the weekend a furious scramble within the administration to try to contain the fallout. And that is what culminated in the announcement last night that all depositors will have access to their funds starting today and that none of the bill would be footed by taxpayers. And we saw the president saying in a statement last night, I am firmly committed to holding those responsible for this mess fully accountable and to continuing our efforts to strengthen oversight and regulation of large 
larger banks so that we are not in this position again. Uh, Poppy, when he speaks a little later this morning, we certainly expect the president to echo some of the messages that we heard from other top U.S. officials over the weekend, really trying to offer a tone of reassurance, uh, namely one, that the U.S. economy is not in the same place that it was back around the 2008 financial crisis, that it is far more resilient, uh, and that some of the reforms that were put in place around that crisis will work, and that that is part of the reason why the federal government is not going to bail out uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And obviously, the big message here from the president is going to be to try to contain any wider panic within the U.S. economy and the banking sector. But how do they answer uh, the real issue here, for at least for these smaller banks, which is the part of Dodd-Frank, right, which was the big banking reform passed after the 2008 financial crisis, got rolled back in 2018, including some with some support from Democrats. And it largely meant that banks about the size of Silicon Valley Bank didn't have to go through stress tests, for example, didn't have the same liquidity requirements. Look, there is going to be a lot of soul searching and a lot of uh, answers that federal regulators will try to answer. We saw some of that over the weekend, uh, but I think it's worth stressing that for the time being, really the task at hand, you can tell uh, by the federal government, is really to try to contain the fallout. Mm -hmm. You know, in addition to announcing that all uh, deposits and funds will be guaranteed by the federal government, we also saw the announcement that the Federal uh, Reserve is creating this emergency lending program so that other banks uh, who are eligible could have access to these uh, extra funds if they needed. Uh, but I think Christine made a really important point at the end of her live shot that uh, there is going to be a real question about whether the Federal Reserve can continue its aggressive rate hikes. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody is disputing that Silicon Valley Bank's collapse was uh, very much in part due to those aggressive rate hikes. And you know that Jerome Powell, as recently as last week, suggested that more aggressive rate hikes could be coming. Uh, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on whether the central bank should and will continue doing that, given that we are seeing such a vivid example of the risks and the costs associated with those historic actions from the central bank. It's such a good point. And the former head of the FDIC, Sheila Bear, told our colleague Matt Egan over the weekend they should pause on rate hikes for now, given all of this. MJ Lee at the White House, thank you yeah. very, it, very much. It's a very good question. We're going to ask Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin about Democrats, because Democrats did support that 2008 rolling she back of some of the dollars. Yeah. She didn't, but some right. of them did. So we'll ask her about it in just a little bit. So with us now, CNN uh, business correspondent Rahel Solomon and Wall Street Journal senior special writer Justin Baer. Good Just by the way, Justin's uh, latest reporting is headline: How Silicon Valley Turned on Silicon Valley Bank. So good to have both of you on. You, I, you know, I was reading your notes and what you wrote about this. You have been very strong about this uh, and and tough on what you call, you are calling this a bailout. You said there's no other way of putting it. This is a bailout, no matter what terminology you want to use. Yeah. Why are you saying that? Well, it's, it's I mean, clearly there are some that, that are getting bailed out, right? You know, the depositors of these, these, these particular banks are, um, many of which are, are companies, right? They need to make payroll. Their money was trapped in these institutions. And so the government took extraordinary actions to allow them to access that money. Right. Even even as those banks were going through receivership and um, and had failed. So uh, whether again, the, the taxpayer money was used to to um, to implement those plans, the government said no. Um, but but clearly there was a rescue of a particular group of people and businesses. Mm -hmm. So Rahel, one of the, the things that, that MJ noted that's really important is what the government's doing now. And they're setting up this um, emergency lending facility. 
So part of the reason that SVB got into a lot of trouble is that they had to sell these long-term treasuries at a loss. Then they went out to try to capital raise last Wednesday. That spooked depositors. Try to, try to get $2 billion. And they saw, and depositors, well, and, and investors saw the loss and pulled out money and saw, you're selling these at a loss because interest rates have gone up. Your securities aren't as attractive anymore. Yep. This, what the government's doing now would prevent against someone else having to do a capital raise like that, right? Right. That's exactly it. Banking is all about confidence, right? Confidence in the system. Confidence that if you or I or anyone here at this table puts their money into a bank, if we need it tomorrow, that money will be there. What happened here with SVB was a lack of confidence. And so you started to see all of these depositors rush to get all of their money out. And that's what led to this panic. So what the Fed is trying to do and what regulators are trying to do here is to prevent that from happening again, right? Sort of uh, insulate the risk here, insulate the contagion so that this doesn't spread beyond an SVB story. And that's why you saw officials... In, in layman's terms, this is an old-fashioned, is it an old-fashioned yeah. run on the bank is what Absolutely. Happened. 100%. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I spoke to a founder who had a lot of her money in this bank last night, and she said that, you know, the tech community is very small. The VC founder community is very small. She said early last week, text messages were starting to go around. It became chatter. And as the days went on, screenshots were going around in terms of, hey, my investor said, pour your money. And so it really did lead to a high-tech problem in terms of tech, but really leading to an old-fashioned bank run. Yeah, I think Patrick McHenry from North Carolina said it was a a Twitter-fueled bank run because they were all, these are very online people who were all talking about those messages. This $250 cap, they're basically waiving it with the steps that we're seeing yesterday. I I think over 90% of SVB's funds were uninsured. So are they going to permanently raise it now? Is it just completely ineffective? What is even the point of the the $250,000 cap? I mean, that's that's the open question, right? Because I think some of the the added steps, including that that fund that was established, uh, is there to support other banks if they find themselves in a similar situation, right? They can borrow from the government. They can... uh, post-collateral, at par, essentially making it a lot less expensive in order to borrow um, and in the event that there is some kind of run. But yeah, but in this case, they decided to waive what, you know, blow, plow right through that de- uh, deposit insurance cap um, in, in allowing these, what are essentially most, in most cases, companies, right, that, uh, that have a lot of money at, at, at these institutions. Are you surprised that they didn't get acquired over the weekend? I think that was that was certainly part of the part of the process, right? So the FDIC had um, initiated an auction for um, for SVB. Um, it didn't obviously there was no there was no winning bid for that auction. I think it's possible that we could see other uh, assets that get sold in the coming days. We saw overnight, uh, or rather this morning, uh, HSBC step in and buy the UK arm of Silicon Valley Bank. So, you know, there's sort of there are interesting businesses in, in both of these these banks that that could warrant some interest. Um, it could be some more deals that we see. Yeah, I think they said that J.P. Morgan uh, and PNC among the suitors are SVB holding company, which would exclude the SVB bank bank part of it. But I think you raise a very good question about what this. When you said about when you took the question about the Feds, whether the Feds will listen to. Um, what has been said to stop raising rates because this this uh, contributed to it. Everyday folks are concerned about this. This isn't just tech people. This isn't just people who have private equity. This affects all aspects all aspects of the economy. So if people are at home, Rahel, and they're sitting there wondering, as they have been all weekend, am I affected by this? What do you say to them? 
Look, it's a great question. I mean, I think we are all so connected in terms of banking. I think the big difference here is that this was largely a very sort of insulated bank, right? A big bank nonetheless, but sort of focusing on a specific sector of the economy. A very important republic. Yeah, a very important part of the economy, but a, a secular sort of insulated part of the economy. I think the reason why the Fed stepped up as quickly as they did is to prevent the risk to people like uh, everyone watching at home, right? To pr- protect r- other regional banks so that we have confidence in the banking system. And that's why we saw the type of I, rapid response that I, we did. I, I, don't, I don't know, Justin. I mean, you point, First Republic was down like 30 percent mm-hmm. that we have images yeah, the of these long lines of people going to First Republic over the weekend trying to take money out. They're they're standing that, you know, but signature is not. And these are not just banks that cater to Silicon Valley. You wrote in your piece about how this exposes some of the vulnerabilities that we still have. Sure. Well, as, as you said earlier, I mean, this is all based on confidence, right? And, and the, the whole financial system, any financial institution is dependent on, that, on the ongoing confidence. So once that's lost or once it becomes lost, it can lead to what we saw this, this past week, right? Um, and that can, that can flare up elsewhere very quickly, which, again, is why you saw the government go beyond just looking at these two institutions over the weekend, but saying, well, how do we avoid uh, seeing other lenders, particularly those that, that again, the, the regulations have changed over the past decade with respect to smaller and medium-sized banks? How can we protect and insulate those, not only those banks, but more importantly, is it their just customers? because they're smaller, medium-sized banks, or is it because they're holders of a lot of mortgages, for example? I mean, all of the above, right? Yeah. You know, so so. You know, every every bank's balance sheet is going to look a little bit differently, right? I mean, everyone has had to deal with the the impact of of rising interest rates. Some did so, obviously, a lot more prudently than than others, right? Right? And so there will be others that will resemble in some ways the way Silicon Valley Bank looked, right? You know, and we see some of the other names get very quickly attached to what happened to them last week. Mm -hmm. Um, But but again, we'll, we'll have to see. It's all based on confidence. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens as we get closer to the markets and the day the banks start opening up. And some of them have actually opened up higher. I mean, some of them have actually been higher on this event. We're going to be watching that. The president's going to speak. There's going to be a lot to deal with with this. Thank you, Rahel. Thank you, uh, Justin. We appreciate that. And we're going to be covering this throughout the show as we wait for President Biden to speak in the coming hours. Also, over the weekend, history was made at last night's Academy Awards. We're going to break down the big winners, the big moments, the big performances. Tonight, the 95th Annual Academy Awards, full of emotion and excitement, even without all the slap drama. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Sweeping the Oscars with seven awards, including a history-making win for actress Michelle Yeoh. CNN also clinching its first, our first golden statue last night. Stephanie Elam is live in Los Angeles with more. What a great night. Everything, everywhere, all at once. The Best Picture winner, living up to its name. Everything was everywhere at the Oscars. Never give up. Michelle Yeoh winning Best Actress, making history as the first woman of Asian descent to win. For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight, (laughs) this is a beacon of hope. Her co-star, Kiwi Kwan, won Best Supporting Actor. Mom! 
I just want an Oscar. Nearly four decades after becoming a child star in Indiana Jones, played, of course, by Harrison Ford. The two with an emotional embrace on the Oscar stage. My journey started on a boat. I spent a year in a refugee camp. And somehow, I ended up here on Hollywood's biggest stage. Races that were too close to call before the show included Best Actor. Brendan Fazer. Brendan Fraser winning Best Actor for The Whale after trading wins all awards season with Elvis's Austin Butler. For Frazier, it's a return to Hollywood's A-list. There, there was a facility that I didn't, uh, I didn't appreciate at the time until it stopped. And I just want to say thank you for this acknowledgement. Jamie Lee Jamie Lee Curtis edged out Angela Bassett for Best Supporting Actress. The one-time scream queen who got her start in the horror film Halloween thanked those genre fans for their decades of support. The thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, we just won an Oscar together. CNN Films' Navalny won Best Documentary Feature. I would like to dedicate this award to Navalny, to all political prisoners around the world. The wife of Russian oppositionist Alexei Navalny speaking directly to her imprisoned husband. Uh, Alexei, I am dreaming the day when you will be free and our country will be free. Uh, stay strong, my love. Last year's Will Smith slap was not ignored by host Jimmy Kimmel. If anyone in this theater commits an act of violence at any point during the show, you will be awarded the Oscar for Best Actor. Kimmel joked, but the Academy did have a crisis team in place, a result of last year's slow response to the slap. If anything unpredictable or violent happens during the ceremony, just do what you did last year. Nothing. And another big question we had was who was going to present the Best Actress Award since that should have been Will Smith since he won the Best Actor last year. Well, Jessica Chastain did also win Best Actress last year for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, so that was a given. But they paired her with uh, Halle Berry, who you remember won for Monsters Ball, and until last night was the only woman of color to ever win Best Actress. So obviously very meaningful to have her up there to present the award to Michelle Yeoh. Poppy. Yeah, so meaningful, so many meaningful moments. I know you haven't slept, so we will let you. <laughs> and a little bit. Not yet. You were great on the red carpet, Steph. And uh, later in the program, we're going to have the director of Navalny join us. A huge, huge win for so many reasons. Um, all right, so let's move on. All right, let's, well, let's talk more about what happened last night. Nichelle Turner is here. She's a CNN contributor and the host of Entertainment Tonight, I mean, it was such an uh, amazing moment as Stephanie just laid out the biggest parts of the Oscars. But for everything, everywhere, all at once, it was, I mean, an incredible evening for them. Yes, it was. I mean, they were up for 11 awards uh, last night, Caitlin, and they took home seven wow. of the Oscars. The <laughs> categories below everything everywhere all at once for the most part and you know it was interesting that stephanie was talking about the halle berry replacement for will smith she told me uh, halle berry did on the red carpet last night that she was going to be a mess if it was michelle yo's name that was called last night because she understood the significance of that moment she understood how special 
excitement was because she lived it. And you saw her when she was giving Michelle Yeoh the Oscar last night that she was in tears as well. Uh, you know, it speaks to, you know, what some people call progress, but also to think in 2023, there's only been two women of color in 95 years of the Academy to win Best Actress. That It does show you there's still a long way to go. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we've been covering, you know, um, Michelle, even when you were here at this network, um, Oscar's so white, right? And then this is a huge night for Asians and Asian Americans. Uh, and especially that the, the moment that I related to the most, that moved me the most was when, I hope I say his name, Hiwi Kwan, when he said, my 80-year-old mother is at home watching. He said, look, mom, I won an mm-hmm. Oscar. I mean, you can't help but tear up at that moment and relate to it. Yeah, I don't think there was a dry eye anywhere watching him. And, and we've been on this ride with him through award season and just seen how emotional and grateful and honored he's been to be at the table, finally. I mean, it was, you know, it's been 30-something years. He said he's been fighting, you know, uh, to exist and to be an actor in Hollywood and to be seen. And now to finally have this moment means everything to him. But so many of the actors and especially actors of color that I spoke with last night on the carpet were saying, listen, we need this to be sustained. We don't want this moment and then to go back to what, you know, we've had in existence here. We need this um, this commitment to diversity and inclusion and, and fairness to be sustained all year through and to make sure that projects that um, are diverse and and um, you know, are wide reaching, are greenlit. So that's really what everybody's thinking about. But it was, I thought it was a really nice night. I mean, I know some people said that this, the, they thought the show was a little boring. I thought Jimmy Kimmel was a standout. I thought he was a fantastic host. He kept it moving, had the right jokes at the right time, did a few digs that, uh, you know, had everyone laughing. So I thought, I thought overall it was a good show. It was, I thought it was a particularly reaffirming, especially for Asian Americans, American actors, or just Asian Americans in the country, considering I was in California covering the, the shootings there and the killings. And every, all of the anti-Asian hate that has been going on in the country, especially since COVID, I thought it was a really important and reaffirming moment for Asian Americans. And I hope that, you know, they yeah. feel it um, in this country and that everyone does. Yes, absolutely. And I hope it's not a moment. Yeah. Again, we hope yeah. Right on. All right, Nichelle, thank you so much. for Nichelle, it looks us. like you got some sleep, even though. <laughs> Nichelle just always I just glows. Spackle after spackle yep. after spackle. <laughs> we know that. We know that trick very well. <laughs> thank you, Nichelle. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Also, over the weekend, Mike Pence delivered his most blistering remarks yet about his former boss and the role that he played in January 6th. And new reporting, House Republicans making a big move as they ramp up their investigation of Hunter Biden. Democrats say they were kept in the dark. Over the weekend, former Vice President Mike Pence delivered his strongest rebuke yet of his former boss, President Donald Trump, and his role on January 6th in the attack on the Capitol these were during remarks at Saturday's Gridiron Club dinner in Washington. It's typically where political figures make fun of each other, people from both sides of the political aisle in these lighthearted remarks. But Pence grew serious at the end of his speech. He said, quote, President Trump was wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. And his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day. And this was the line that really stood out to everyone in the room. I know that history will hold Donald Trump accountable. Pence was also sharply critical of Republicans and the conservative media who've tried to minimize what happened on that day in recent weeks. He said tourists don't injure 140 police officers by sightseeing. 
tourists don't break down doors to get to the Speaker of the House or voice threats against public officials. Make no mistake about it, what happened that day was a disgrace, and it mocks decency to portray it in any other way. I asked Mike Pence's former colleague, Trump's former chief economic advisor, Gary Cohn, if he agreed with the former vice president that Trump should be held accountable for that day. This is what he said. Look, that that was a, a, a shocking day in the history of this country. We continue to be reminded about January 6th. And, and I think we will all live with it and all live with the memories of what happened on January 6th. I agree. I agree with him. Notable to hear from Gary Cohn. What was it like being at the dinner to hear that in real time? Well, it's interesting because typically it's jokes. It's, you know, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy spoke, Secretary of State Blinken, but Pence went first. And you're normally just laughing the whole time, making jokes, a lot of jokes about classified documents, George Santos, whatnot. But Pence got very serious at the end. And the other thing that really stood out is he was he praised the press a lot for coverage of January 6th and how it kept people at the Capitol that day and kept the focus on there. And obviously to hear that coming from someone who worked for Trump is really notable. But the Trump being held accountable thing was it was kind of a moment where everyone was like, yeah. But yet people started paying attention. They're like, wait a minute, this isn't funny. And as it went on longer, I am told, and you were there, people started really to pay attention because they're like, wait a minute, this isn't the usual thing. But I think it's important, Caitlin, to point out, he's saying all of these things. And then, as you said, um, praising the media, which is shocking, right? He fought the special counsel, right? He is, he won't testify. He has really sort of blocked everything to do with January 6th, at least his involvement in, in testifying. Well, he wrote about it in his book, and that is actually a part of this, is that they are fighting it. They're saying he shouldn't have to go testify about certain conversations because he was acting as president of the Senate that day, and they're protected. Um, But also, he did not go testify to the January 6th committee. They argued it was political. But that is some of the criticism he's faced over those comments. All right. Well, we'll continue to follow that. Also, new CNN reporting to tell you about CNN is learning that the House Oversight Committee chairman is ramping up a probe on Hunter Biden by quietly issuing a sweeping subpoena for bank records spanning 14 years for three of his business associates. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us live from Washington with more. Good morning to you, Sarah Murray. So what do we know about the subpoena? Well, look, James Comer has been really loud about this Biden investigation, right? But he has been pretty quiet about this subpoena. We actually learned about it from a letter that Democrats in the House Oversight Committee uh, released uh, last night, sending it to James Comer, pointing out their concerns about this subpoena, which went to Bank of America. It covers 14 years, as you said, and three of Hunter Biden's former business associates. Democrats have slammed this subpoena as overly broad, saying it doesn't just cover, you know, payments related to this potential business deal they were involved with Hunter Biden, but everything from uh, the Americans' payments he was paying to for parking tickets to what he was paying for his kids' dance lessons. They're also taking aim at Comer, essentially saying, we normally get a courtesy 48 hours heads up, but we just got this subpoena dropped on us, Don. Well, this all stems from a letter sent by the ranking Democrat, Jamie Raskin, who basically writes that Comer is a hypocrite. What are Democrats taking issue with here? Yeah, that's right. I mean, remember, when when Democrats controlled the House, they were investigating former President Donald Trump for payments foreign governments were making to his hotels to try to curry influence with the Trump administration. And as part of this, the House uh, Oversight Committee reached a deal with Trump's team for Mazars, uh, Trump's accounting firm, to hand over documents related to this last year. Well, Democrats said they learned that this year, an attorney for Donald Trump reached out to Mazars and essentially said the House of Representatives, now that it's run by Republicans, 
Republicans is no longer interested in receiving these documents. So essentially, you can stop turning them over. So Democrats are saying, you guys are hypocrites. You only want to investigate Joe Biden, his family. You're not interested in investigating former President Donald Trump. Comer is saying, I didn't meddle in this Mazars issue. This is just about Democrats wanting to get in front of my investigation. Sarah Murray, early for us in Washington this morning. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks. More than 40 million people across the South are under freeze alerts as a powerful storm. Winter storm barrels toward the Northeast. We're going to have the latest forecast for you live. Meanwhile, Northern California bracing for another round of heavy rain and flooding after a levee break, forced evacuations and hundreds of water rescues. We'll take you live on the ground there. Heavy snowfall and blizzard conditions expected in the Midwest and Great Lakes regions today and more than 40 million people across the South under freeze alerts this morning. New England also bracing for Northeaster expected tonight. Let's get to meteorologist Chad Myers in the Weather Center. Chad, you're kind of busy. Yeah, a lot going on. And California, too. Yeah. Talk about that here at the end. Uh, temperatures are going to go down. People that did plant their tomatoes here across the south, they're going to have to try to cover them up or do something because it is going to get well below freezing in many spots. Freeze warnings, in effect, all across from Nashville to Birmingham and to Atlanta. It's part of the cold air that's going to eventually wrap around this low right here just off the east coast and make that nor'easter. Could be two to three feet of snow into interior New England, parts of upstate New York as well. Along I-95 and especially east New York, Boston, you're going to be rain-snow mix. Even New York, you're going to be, even if it's snowing, it'll be 35 degrees. But not in the interior. That's where the snow will be. A couple of feet of snow likely. That's why there are winter storm warnings in effect. I know it doesn't feel like winter now that we changed our clock. And hey, Don, the clock in my car is now accurate for the first time in six months. Uh, wind across parts of the east, winds 40 to 60 miles per hour. And there is the new storm for California. I got a little nervous this morning because on the coffee maker at home, it still said four o'clock. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm really, really early this morning. But actually, I was kind of late. So there you go. Have a good day, buddy. What's the phrase? Caitlin's laughing at me over here. Broken clock is right twice a year, yes, I guess. That would be me. <laughs> I don't know how to change the timer on my clock either. I'm yeah. just like, whatever. I'll yeah. figure it out. Thank goodness for cell phones now. It does it automatically. Poppy's like, you guys are crazy. We got other stuff to get to. <laughs> you heard it from Chad. California bracing for yet another round of storms. What uh, With about 17 million people under flood watches this morning there and in Nevada, officials warning that... Uh, Monterey Peninsula and the rest of the county may be entirely cut off. Let's go to our colleague Mike Villiero. He's live in California for us. Seems never ending. How are people coping? Well, they're trying to do the best they can, Poppy. Good morning to you. And we have good news to report at this hour. You know, all weekend, Poppy, we had our waiters on and walking up and down the street. The water here in this central neighborhood was coming up above our knees. Now you're able to drive to the end of the street safely. But, Poppy, more rain is on the way. Warnings of intense sustained flooding in the days ahead after California's latest atmospheric river compromised part of a critical levee, sending this rushing river into homes, farms, and trapping families in the small community of Pajaro. We really didn't expect it to happen, um, but here we are now. They started evacuating, I think, at 12 in the morning or 1 in the morning, and uh, 
They're just starting the National Guard to taking people out as they go. Officials say an 11th atmospheric river system forecast for Monday could send more water rushing through the still breached levee. There could be more water in our backdrop, but there will also be more water throughout the county. The raging floodwaters leading to a dramatic aerial rescue captured above the Salinas River. California Highway Patrol saving a man stranded on an island after floodwaters swept him and his car into the river. The man brought to dry land unharmed. Folks, we are not done yet. We are dealing with rain and wind events that I can only describe as a super soaker saturation event. But an undeniable sense of flood fatigue creeping in, even as officials issued new evacuation orders for more communities near the Salinas River. And back in hard-hit Pajaro, community supervisor Luis Alejo told us there's a sense of vulnerability, both about the future of Pajaro and its mostly migrant families. This community is resilient. It's strong. When these waters recede, Pajaro is going to rise. This is such a great hardship on this community, but we know that we will get through through this. So the animating energy for today will be crews from the state of California, contractors trying to put as many boulders, riffraff into that levee breach to try to shore it up. Think of it as a rock band-aid doing as much work as they can before the 11th atmospheric river system of this season impacts California. And you know, Poppy, when you were asking a couple uh, seconds ago how people are coping, this community is filled with migrants here living their American dream. So they are depending on the speed of these contractors yeah. to try to fix this levy as much as possible because they have everything here to lose, Poppy. I'm so glad you pointed that out, Mike Valerio. Thank you for the reporting there. All right, I cannot believe I'm saying this, but Alabama is a number one seed in the tournament. Get your brackets ready. March Madness is about to get underway. We're going to break down the best strategy to make your picks. Some people at the table need help with that. We'll be right back. All right, you saw it right there in the top left-hand corner. Alabama in the bracket. It's Bracket Monday. It's a really good day for Alabama fans. And a lot of fans, but the March Madness field is now set. It is time to start filling out your brackets if you haven't done so yet. I have not yet, but I will soon. Andy Scholes is joining us now with some tips on how to win your bracket competition. Obviously, put Alabama is winning it all, Andy, I think is tip number one, right? Well, Kayla, I think a lot of people would differ with you on that one, including <laughs> myself, because I went to the University of Houston, by the way. But, uh, you know, there's lots of different strategies, but it's always, you know, a great time, you know, competing with your friends and coworkers in your bracket pool or competitions. Uh, and, you know, it's always a lot of fun, you know, picking an upset in the first or second round or finding that Cinderella and then bragging that you were able to get a couple wins out of them. But, you know, if you really want to win your bracket pool or competition, it's all about the end. It's all about, you know, the final game right here. And it's about picking a champion, right? More often than not, the person who wins your pool or competition, they will have picked the champion. And there's a stat that can actually help you when it comes to picking who's going to win the NCAA tournament. It's called Ken Palm. Ken Palm measures a team's offensive and defensive efficiency. And since 2002, every single NCAA champion has been in the top 40 in offense and top 22 in defense. And you see these seven teams over here right here? They're already there. These are seven solid picks to win your bracket this year. you got four teams over here. Uh, they could get there. You know, the, the, by the end of the tournament, those four teams could win the tournament according to Ken Palm. Now, two teams you didn't see on there were Gonzaga and Arizona. According to Ken Palm, they are not going to meet those thresholds because of defensive efficiency. And also, look at this map. Since 1997, 
Every single NCAA champion has come from east of this side of this line right here through the middle. Gonzaga, UCLA, I don't know, they're over there. Texas is also on the wrong side of that map. So, who should you pick if you want to win your bracket? Well, look at that, the one seed has won 26 times. So if you want the highest probability of winning your bracket, you should probably go with a one seed to win it when it's all said and done. Who are the one seeds? You got Alabama, Kansas, Houston, and Purdue this year. Look at this though, since 1974, these are the only two teams that have repeated as champions. The Kansas Jayhawks won last year. It's very hard to repeat, so keep that in mind. So I'm sure, Caitlin, you're like, I like where you're going with this. Maybe I should pick Alabama. Where is the Final Four this year? It's in Houston. Houston are also the favorites, but since <laughs> 1988, that was the last time, guys, that we saw a champion win the title close to home. So is it going to happen for Houston this year? I like to think so. I think it's going to be a fairy tale ending for my Houston Cougars. That's who I'm going with. <laughs> I All know right. you differ from that, Kate. I have not seen Andy <laughs> Scholes this excited this early in the morning We're in a long time. We're pumped right now. <laughs> got till Thursday to fill out those brackets, so you got time to do your research as well. Love it. Thank What'd you, What did you say Andy? about my brackets? Caitlin, I said I usually get help. You said you were yeah. security next Yeah, SEC <laughs> on Don Fur. He said he wanted help with his bracket. I said, no, you have to do it yourself. Speaking of regulators, we are continuing to track the fallout over the sudden collapse of two U.S. banks. Businesses this morning scrambling to get cash to pay their employees. That's next. Poppy's going to head to a local toy store that she's going to be asking, that a toy store that was asking for public help to stay afloat. You're going to be, you want to see that. She's going to be live at a toy store right near where we were to uh, discuss all of that. Yeah, we'll real right life back. impact. The federal government is now stepping in to calm financial panic over the failure of two U.S. banks. The Biden administration announcing it will extend a federal backstop to all the bank's deposits. Treasury officials pushed back on the idea that this was a bailout, saying that the burden will not be borne by the taxpayers. Just moments from now, we will hear from President Biden. Water everywhere, causing chaos across central California. Warnings of intense sustained flooding in the days ahead. It's unimaginable. Folks, we are not done yet. Former Vice President Mike Pence telling a crowd in Washington that history will judge former President Donald Trump for his actions on January 6th. That's probably not a message that will be terribly popular with Republican-based voters. Three women who live in Texas are believed to be missing in Mexico. We really haven't had any other incidents that I can recall. And the Oscar goes to everything, everywhere, all at once. This year at the Academy Awards, they had its highest number of Asian nominees ever. For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight, <laughs> this is a beacon of hope. Dreams do come true. And welcome in, everyone, on a very busy Monday morning. We're going to begin with the Biden administration scrambling to prevent an economic meltdown after two different banks failed. Poppy is on her way to speak with a local toy store about how they are scrambling to respond. We're going to go to her very shortly. Meantime, a live look at the White House, where President Biden is set to address the nation in the 8 o'clock hour as the federal government tries to ease panic and stop the crisis from snowballing. We'll carry that for you live. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed on Friday, becoming the largest U.S. banking failure since the Great Recession in 2008. Regulators also shut down Signature Bank, based in New York. They say it was on the brink of collapse and a threat to the entire banking system. Feds are now taking extraordinary action. They're guaranteeing that customers of both banks 
will be able to get their money back starting today. And they're offering emergency loans to other banks to keep them afloat. I'm going to go straight to CNN senior White House correspondent MJ Lee for the very latest. Good morning, MJ. What do we expect to hear from the president when he speaks shortly? Good morning, John. Well, it is clear that President Biden's overarching message this morning is going to be there is no need for panic. We saw over the weekend the administration working furiously to try to contain the fallout, and that culminated in the announcement last night that was quite dramatic that said all depositors will have access to all of their funds starting today and that taxpayers are not going to foot the bill. Uh, when he speaks in a little bit, uh, the president, we expect him to echo some of the messages of reassurance that we heard from some of the other top U.S. officials, including the fact that they believe the U.S. economy is not where it was back around the 2008 crisis, that the economy is far more resilient, that the reforms that were put in place after that financial crisis will work. Uh, that is part of why Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said that the bank is not going to be uh, bail, uh, is going to get a bailout, excuse me, and also this commitment that uh, they are going to try to protect small businesses. Remember, small businesses uh, made up a large portion of the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, but the president, you know, last night said in a statement that he will hold those responsible for this mess fully accountable. We are about to see who he believes are responsible for what happened and also what accountability is going to look like, Don. All right. MJ Lee joining us from the White House this morning. Thank you, MJ. All right. So let's talk more about this because it's remarkable at the moment that we're in. Two banks have abruptly closed their doors. The U.S. government is now backing the deposits, not just for Silicon Valley Bank, but also Signature Bank. Christine Romans is here to explain, along with the ProPublica senior editor and reporter, Jesse Eisinger. I want to get to you on what the federal government is doing in a moment. But can you just explain this? Because now it's not just the bank that happened on right. Friday, SVB. It's also this bank from yesterday that has now collapsed its doors after that warning they right. got. So, look, this is, this is, in short, a run on the back. bank. Classic run on the bank. And some two things happened here. The Fed started cranking up interest rates, right? And so all of these long-dated treasuries that, that SVB had on its books got less and less valuable. At the same time, tech was starting to have a little bit of a downturn. And so the companies that used to be putting money into the bank were taking money out of the bank because they were burning so much cash. And suddenly... When there's it became, no money. There, there's, well, suddenly it became clear that um, the bank was selling its treasuries at a loss, spooked uh, investors. Investors started telling their companies that the startups that they invested in, get your money out of there. And there was a, it was a classic, classic run on the bank. But I think what's really clear here is we knew when the Fed was jacking up interest rates, you would find maybe some weaknesses in the system. Something would break. And in this case, these two banks broke. What's your take? Because I know we, we talked in the break here about... Um whether this was um, the issue, whether it's a bailout. Yeah. And you say it clearly is, even though taxpayer money is being said, well, taxpayer money is not being used. Yeah, well, that's, it would be pretty to think so, but it's not the case. Taxpayer money is backing this. There are two ways that we are bailing out these banks right now. And when we're talking about bailing out the banks and the depositors, what we're really talking about is bailing out tech bros and venture capitalists who were backing the companies that were depositors here. So what we're doing is we're protecting the depositors, but there isn't enough money in the insurance fund that's paid for by banks to really protect all the depositors in America. So that's really backed by taxpayers. If there was really a run, taxpayers would back that. The second thing is that the Fed opened up a huge new lending facility today. We're not talking about that as much, but that's going to banks and they can sell 
uh, or they can give their assets that have lost money to the Fed and they get a loan and they get a cheap loan um, that they couldn't get otherwise. So taxpayers are certainly backing up these very wealthy investors who have made mistakes. I think one thing that's important to note, though, is that this company did have a lot of uh, companies running their payroll through this. So it's not just it's affecting tech bros in Silicon Valley. Real people weren't going to get paid, and that was a concern. But basically, what we heard from a Treasury official last night was, quote, the firms are not being bailed out. Depositors are being protected. You're saying that they're wrong. Right. They are wrong. That's not accurate. Now, and I agree with you about payrolls, but uh, we, you know, the Basically, the Treasury is like, la, 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 it's not a bailout. We can, if we can name this something else, it's not the case. But what happened is people were about to take losses. And the losses primarily were wealthy venture capitalists. And let's be clear, some of the biggest anti-government deregulation advocates in America were suddenly screaming for federal government help this weekend. They got it, and their losses were prevented by the federal government stepping in. That's, there's no way to sugarcoat that. That's a bailout. Stockholders in the bank will not be protected. They're going to be you know, wiped out, Absolutely. and I think that's important to note. Um, and I think you know, bailout is such a dirty word after the great financial crisis um, when these banks took risks that were just ridiculous and the entire uh, the entire financial system was on the brink. This is not 2008. And I don't think this bank is a systemic risk kind of bank, this SVP. And disagree with me if you want. And, and Signature, this is uh, a different kind of scenario that we're in here. But they're still very, very careful about not wanting to call this a bailout. I would point out that the bailout of the great financial crisis, taxpayers made money in the end on that bailout. In the end. In the end. But it was ugly and it hurt along the way. That Fed facility you're talking about, I think, is really important to note. So this is a this this is the Fed giving banks, banks who want it, a one year loan. Their collateral is all of these bonds that are worth less today, but they're letting them count them at par, not marking them to market. So it's like giving them really good, cushy deal. (laughs) And there you have it. There's a bailout. I think you made a really important point that underlying this is a question of whether this was an actual systemic risk that required the federal government to come in here. And this is one bank. Banks do fail. Um, This was concentrated in one specific area, Silicon Valley, very wealthy enclaves, um, also a small part of the overall economy. And the number of employers uh, and employment here, while significant, and I'm very sympathetic to the payroll argument, is very small. We're talking maybe 100, 150,000 workers here. So um, it's really not really an economy-wide systemic financial crisis that required the federal government Possibly. Quickly, before, before we go, I talked to Gary Cohn yesterday, Trump's former economic advisor, now runs IBM. Senator Warren has criticized the rollback of those Dodd-Frank rules that were put in place, saying that contributed in part because there was less oversight of a bank of this size. Do you, either of you think that's true? He says it's not. He says it's, he doesn't think it would It's a very this. good point. And one of the people who was advocating for that rollback was the CEO of SVB, the failed bank. And what happened was they carved out these regional banks from Dodd-Frank protections. And so that was a Trump-era deregulation. we got to run just real quickly. What do we expect to hear from the president today? Look, I think he's going to say that we're going to make sure the financial system is strong and that we're going to make sure that your money is safe. And I think the bottom line here is that if you have less than $250,000 in a bank account, your money is safe no matter what happens. It's insured by by the federal government. 
In this case, these are people and companies that had way more than 250, that had $137 billion in uninsured assets uh, deposits sitting in this bank. You know, they weren't protected. But the government stepped in and said everyone will be made whole. By the way, Jesse's also the author of the chicken, you know what, poop club. Uh, I won't say the word morning television. Why the Justice Department fails to prosecute executives. Thank you both. Chicken shoot. Chicken shoot. Chicken That's shoot. Right. That's what they say in Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can fix one of the vowels there and you know what we're talking about. Okay, thank you both. I appreciate it. So even if you don't, you know, monitor or closely monitor the market, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Silicon Valley Bank's failure is having a real impact. Uh, You need proof of that? Look at the toy store camp. They're a venture-backed retailer. And on Friday, they sent an email out to their customers to put up this ad, put it up right there on their website. It said, when you bank, when your bank collapse, run, don't walk right, to save 40% at camp. Uh, the captions say, I never liked the Bay Area, and could this, this happen? How could this happen? This all sucks. Promo code, bank run. Is that right? So, uh, Poppy, we're, um, you know, we're talking about kids' toys here, and you're live at the camp store right now. Poppy, what are you seeing? Hello. Hey, guys, good morning. We're with uh, Ben Kaufman, the founder of Camp and the CEO. This is your idea over the weekend. Um, And we're smiling because, thank goodness, your deposits are now uh, assured because of the federal government. But this was a last-ditch effort over the weekend to try not to collapse. That's how dependent you guys were on SVB. Yeah, about 85% of our company's cash assets were were at SVB. 85%? Yep. Millions of dollars? Millions of dollars. Okay, so what happened to you Friday? So on Friday when we got the, the alert that uh, the FDIC was, was taking control of the bank, we, we had no idea what would be the next step. We, we did not know how long it was going to take for us to get our cash out. And to be honest, we still kind of don't. They say today, we'll see, we'll see what happens. You don't know if you can get your money. Well, we, hope, we hope we can, and we're so grateful that, that the Fed stepped in in the way they did. Um, but we did what startups do, which is we kind of took matters into our own hand and we kind of had that fight for survival. Uh, it's a similar fight for survival we felt when, when COVID happened and we ran an experiential right. choice store. Um, and so we turned to our most loyal group of customers and said, hey, we need, we need inflows of cash right now. We set up a new account and, and kind of pushed our weekend sales to a new account. At JP Morgan Chase. At JP Morgan Chase. And we said, we need your help. And the outpouring of support was so the, Absolutely incredible. Uh, to all our viewers and guys back in the studio, the, the reason that I wanted to have been on is I'm one of those loyal customers. I got little kids. You've got three little kids. I get this email Saturday, Friday afternoon, and I'm like, wow, they are turning to everyone who's a customer to try to save the business. That's how dire the streets were for you. Yeah, we had to pretend like it was the end of times. And not pretend, it, it felt that way. Yes. Um, and we had to find a way to, to, you know, fight for survival. And that was, again, turning to customers, providing them with a little bit of offer. Yeah. Right? There was, there was value in it for customers. We offered 40% off. And um, we, were, we were so lucky to have, have so much amazing support. In all the things that keep you up at night as the founder of a business, small business, of, as a startup, did you ever think that your deposits that were largely held in you know, securities, treasuries, bonds would not be available? No, I mean, like you said, like running a startup is hard. Running a retailer is hard. Running a D2C product company is hard. Running, a, running an experiential environment yeah. is hard. We never had to think about, like, the safety of our bank. Um, that's an added layer. Okay, so I spoke to a lot of uh, founders this weekend, and the, another startup founder and CEO told me that it was a requirement 
that if you got lending from SVB, you had to hold all of your cash deposits there. They required that. Is that true for you? It was true. Uh, at a certain point in our company's uh, history, we had a line of credit with SVB. We no longer uh, did at the time of the collapse. Uh, but because all of, you know, when you check out at the register, the money automatically went to SVB. It was all kind of wired in yeah. uh, to SVB. We never actually transferred that away once that um, but that's contractual notable. requirement I mean, went away. It would explain why so many founders and startups had all of their cash in this bank. Yes. Yeah. We, that was the, it was the bank to use. And they made you do that if you wanted to get credit from them. Yep. What do you do? You have a message for the management, Gregory Becker, the CEO, the management of SVB. Do you think this was bad management? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm I run a toy store. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not an economist. I don't know how to manage you know money at that scale. Um, I, frankly, like SVB was there for us when we needed them. They were yeah. there for other startups when we needed them. And again, startups are hard. And is that um, why you didn't pull all your money out when you heard all this? Twitter chatter and VCs talking about pulling money out. We attempted wanted, to on Thursday. And you couldn't um, get it. It just didn't settle at the, at the other bank. I have to think of all your employees first. Yeah. What, so we what were they saying to you? What were they feeling? Well, again, we were lucky to have an account already set up at J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, I, the first thing I said to our employees is that we have a little bit of cash there because if you pay in cash in our stores, uh, you know, the, the store managers ran it over to Chase. We had a little bit of cash there. We knew we were going to be able to make payroll uh, this week. Uh, but we said, like, the future is uncertain. We don't know what the next step is going to be. And so, we again, we turned to the turned to customers, and immediately store managers were saying there was, the stores were packed, and, you know, what we saw online from people that were not only existing customers but new customers wanting to support this brand was, you know, I'll never forget it. It was Does, amazing. I'm so glad. Does it change, finally, how you hold your money going forward? Do you now split it up? I think a lot of heads of small companies and startups are thinking, do we put 20% in this bank and 20% in this bank and 20% in this bank? Yeah, I think that's going to have to be a consideration moving forward. Um, you know, I don't want to do this again. No, no one does. <laughs> We're glad you're okay. You're going to make your next payroll. We sure are. I mean, again, like we, the support this weekend was incredible. We're just going to go back to the regular startup fights. You know, the regular, you know, fighting, fighting for survival that every startups do, Look, even when their bank you, is stable. You made it through COVID. Yeah. You made it through this. I told you we get all of our kids. Thank you. Christmas gifts, birthday gifts here. The staff is always so lovely. Good luck. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Very much. Thanks for ben me. Kaufman. Hey guys, back to you. Yeah, and the cool, one of the coolest old school rocking horses um, in that store, Poppy. As you know, they, you they love the old school <laughs> rocking horse. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. Yeah. It was great. I love that he said, I, "I'm a toy store owner." Right. I'm not an economist. I'm not an economist, and I think that speaks to a lot of folks. Uh, what a lot of folks are dealing with. Yeah, it's such a good interview by Poppy there. And it yeah. just also brings home the real-life impacts of this. I mean, Vox Media, Etsy, Roku, all of these companies were affected by this over the weekend and did not know if when, you know, this morning happened, if they were going to have access to any of their money. Now they're saying they'll have access to all of it. But it shows you, you know, he's a toy store owner, and he's like, what am I going to do? And it's still, even though they're going to have access to it, it still caused a lot of consternation. There's a lot of undoing of things that they probably tried to put into place over the weekend that they're going to have to fix. So it's not done yet, so we're going to no. continue to pay attention. And remember, the president's going to speak shortly, and we're going to carry that for you live. Interesting to see what he's going to have to say. In the meantime, North Korea saber-rattling once again, this time with a missile test launched from a submarine. Also, officials say that a large group of people seen here approached the U.S. border point, the entry point in El Paso, Texas, in an attempt at mass entry into the country. We'll take you live to the ground next.
North Korea conducting another missile test. It launched two strategic cruise missiles from a submarine on Sunday. Officials in Pyongyang saying the drill, quote, confirmed the reliability of the weapons system. The move comes as the U.S. and South Korea kick off their annual springtime joint military exercise, the 11-day Freedom Shield. Drills are the largest in the last five years. North Korea also issued several warnings against the scheduled drill last month. Also, U.S. Border Patrol clashed over the weekend with a large group of migrants at the El Paso border crossing. Officials say that the migrants were essentially trying to gain entry to the U.S. en masse on Sunday, forcing agents to put up barricades and halt traffic. CNN's Rosa Flores joins us live from Houston. Rosa, what happened and how did officials uh, handle this? Caitlin, good morning. According to Customs and Border Protection, this disruption started at about 1.30 on Sunday. And this happened at the Paso del Norte Bridge in El Paso, Texas. Now, this connects El Paso to Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. And CBP says that they deployed physical barriers to to stop this uh, attempted mass entry into the United States. Now, according to Customs and Border Protection, by 7 p.m. local time, the flow of traffic was back to normal. And Caitlin, I just checked those cameras, the live cameras and the traffic is back to normal. And the big question is why? Why are we seeing this right now? Well, you probably remember the immigration policy towards Venezuelans changed in October. And since then, Caitlin, there's been a swelling of Venezuelans in uh, Ciudad Juarez on the Mexican side. And from talking to some of them recently, I mean, there's just desperation. They feel hopeless because they've sold everything in their home country and now they're stuck on the border. Caitlin. And all of this is going on as we are also tracking this investigation this morning, Rosa, for these three women who are from Texas that have disappeared on their way to a border town in Mexico. What can you tell us about the latest on that investigation? You know, I just obtained photographs of the search. This is from the Nuevo Leon AG's office. He sent me these overnight, and these are from March 7th. You can see that there's dozens of vehicles involved and drones and also personnel. And now this, again, is in the state of Nuevo Leon in Mexico. Here's a timeline that we know. According to the Peñitas, Texas police chief, now this is in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas, he says that these three women crossed over to Mexico on February 24th. Now, according to several Mexican authorities, they say that these women were driving a green 1996 Chevy Silverado and that they were going from a town in Nuevo León called China to another town in Nuevo León called Monte Morelos when they disappeared and that their family uh, uh, reported them missing on February 25th. Now, if this name sounds familiar, Tamaulipas, it's because it should. Now, that's the state where the four Americans recently were kidnapped. Well, these women had to drive through the state of Tamaulipas to get to Nuevo León, Mexico. Now, as you know, the state of Tamaulipas is in the Department of State's Do Not Travel list. The state of Nuevo León is not on that list, but it's considered uh, uh, an area where crime and kidnappings also happen. And Caitlin, I should mention, we've reached out to the FBI. The FBI is not commenting at this time. Caitlin. And you know their families are worried about those three women. Rosa Flores in Houston, thank you for that. Straight ahead, the big wins and highlights from last night's Oscar awards and how the slap was addressed. If anyone in this theater commits an act of violence at any point during the show, you will be awarded the Oscar for best actor. Oscar goes to... Can you wake up?
Michelle Yeoh. And the Oscar goes to everything, everywhere, all at once. It really was everywhere last night. Everything, everywhere, all at once, dominating the Oscars last night with the eccentric science fiction concept taking home seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Original Screenplay, Lead Actor, Supporting Actress, and Supporting Actor and Editing. It was a largely drama-free night following last year's explosive slapping incident. For more, let's bring in Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and Brett Lang, Variety Executive Editor. Hey, guys, good morning. Great, great, great to have you both very, very much. What a night. And what a night to finally showcase and honor the diversity that we've been waiting for so long at these awards. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone was really rooting for everything everywhere all at once. You know, it was so wonderful to see them take home so many awards, to see you know, three acting awards also for actors who have never been nominated before across the big four. You know, it's really incredible to see what happened last night. Yeah. yeah. What stood out to you? I mean, as you were watching it, it definitely did not have the same drama as last year. But I think that was kind of welcome, the fact that the spotlight was on something like uh, all of these Asian actors and actresses and Asian Americans and putting that in the spotlight instead of, you know, what we were talking about a year ago. I mean, absolutely. They they cleared the very low bar of no guests got assaulted. So I think that's that's a sign of progress. But what really stood out to me was uh, the number of comebacks and kind of reassessments when it came to a lot of the major winners. I mean, you had people like Michelle Yeoh, who at 60 has been seen as kind of a martial arts star, you know, earning this kind of acknowledgement. Somebody like Ki Hu Kwan, who had actually, uh, because of a lack of career opportunities, been kind of out of the industry for a number of years. He came back. Brendan Fraser, someone who had been on the A-list for, for many years and then had all these personal health struggles, um, and he came back and, and won the Oscar. So I think there was a lot to sort of feel good about, which was a really nice thing, particularly in contrast to last year's ceremony. Were you surprised that Brendan Fraser, I was a little bit, I thought Elvis, you know, that it would, it would be, but I was kind of hoping for Brendan Fraser because I thought it was such an important role that he played. I think some of it is just the enormous amount of goodwill that people have towards Brendan Fraser. And if you looked at uh, all the different Oscar events, this man is just so nice, so generous, um, and so genuine. And I think that's what people really responded to. How was Jimmy Kimmel as the host? Was he pretty good? You know, he wasn't, He, I feel like he wasn't really around too much. Like, I feel like it was a very straightforward show, right? Like, it was, like, very, you know, there was not a lot of excess fat on it. Like, they didn't do a lot of bits. It's a lot of cocaine bear. Yeah, there's a lot of cocaine <laughs> bear bits. That's what we joke about. Yeah, cocaine bear needed to ease off the cocaine last night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was a lot of that. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll see a cocaine bear, like, sweep next year at the Oscars or something. But, yeah, he was not, he didn't do too much. Um, so that was... It was fine, you know. It was kind of like a, a little bit of a dry show, but I feel like that's how the Oscars we talk about usually this, function. Though? I mean, <laughs> wow, look at her. Stunning. Yeah. Well, and speaking of people getting recognized that deserved recognition and had for so long not been afforded that recognition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. She's gorgeous. Angela Bassett we're talking about. And she was up for Best Supporting Actress, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like everyone was sort of shocked that she didn't take it home last night, too. I think there was a lot. It was a really tough Best Supporting Actress category, and I think everyone sort of was had their had their winner in mind, and so it could have really been anyone for that. Were you surprised by the Best Supporting role? Did you think it was going to be Angela Bassett? I thought it was between her and Jamie Lee Curtis, Jamie Lee but I think it's a lot like the Brendan Fraser thing. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis has been in the industry for decades. She's worked with a lot of people. There are a lot of uh, friends uh, who are among, among the voting block 
who I think probably put her over the top. And I think Angela Bassett will be back. I, I yeah. think she'll win at some point. But Poppy, you love that acceptance speech moment from Kehui Kwan from Everything Ever All at Once. You were talking about that. Uh, I, yeah. Was it me? Oh, I was. Was you? you? As well. yeah, oh, I when, thought it was Poppy. When, um, when he said, uh, my 84, 83-year-old mother is at home right now, Look, Mom, I won an Oscar, and I so related to that. It was, it made me cry. I think that's as far as I got. I think I fell asleep after that. <laughs> it was also really special when Harrison Ford presented Best Picture, and they had a very special hug to kind of have this Indiana Jones reunion in this moment. You know, that was his first role, and I mean, he just had a really tough time over the years since he was a child actor. And to have this moment where you know Steven Spielberg is rooting for him in the audience, to have Harrison Ford present him yeah. the award, and you know. That, I think that was just like such a highlight for me to see them kind of have that little moment on the stage. And Halle Berry, my goodness, yeah. that, she gets more beautiful every <laughs> year. Stunning. No truer words yes, than stunning. that. <laughs> um, guys, thank you so much. And I loved what you wrote about it being a night of comebacks and reassessments. So thank you very much, Brittany and Brent. Thank you. Really exciting news for us, too, here at CNN. CNN Films taking home Best Documentary with Navalny. At 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, we're going to be joined by the CNN Film Navalny's director, Daniel Rohr. Here's a look at the stock futures this morning. The White House keeping close eye on how the markets will react to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, as it's been shorthanded. Signature Bank being shut down as well. The president's going to speak next hour, but first we're going to be joined by Senator Tammy Baldwin. She was on a call with the Biden administration last night. All right, an update for you on the news that everyone has been watching all weekend. This morning, we are seeing regional banks get hammered two hours before the markets are set to open. First Republican Bank shares they are plunging down more than 60% after what we saw happen on Friday and yesterday. Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank both, both closing their doors as President Biden is set to speak about the sustainability of the U.S. economy and the banking system, these failures that we've seen playing out soon. CNN's Christine Romans is here now. Okay, so First Republic Bank has shed half of its value yeah. before the markets even opened. Yeah, look, these regional banks are really getting hammered here today. And it look, investors are looking for anything that looks even remotely like SVB. And so they look at some of these West Coast regional banks and they're hammering uh, hammering those. First Republic uh, down sharply here. That number is not correct. And PacWest is down this morning as well. Charles Schwab, which is also a West Coast money manager, down 8%. Um, so we're watching these very closely. Other banks are down. Um, the big national banks are also down 1% and 2% this morning. So you're going to see a lot of unease in the banking sector. It's not necessarily concerns about their balance sheets. It's concerns about profitability. And what do I mean by that? Well, these banks are going to have to start paying more interest for depositors to keep depositors mm. happy and to keep the deposits in their banks. And that means that they're going to make less profit. So that's one of the things you're seeing in the banking sector. But overall, I can tell you that um, stock index futures are just barely mixed here. So this could have been a very different looking day here today if the Fed uh, and the FDIC and the Treasury hadn't stepped in. So you've got some stability overall in the stock market. But in the banking sector, we'll be watching very, very closely because there's still some unease there. And overall, I mean, it's hard to know right now, but for if you're a mid-sized bank or if you're banking with a mid-sized bank, is this going to hurt them? Are people going to be less so likely to go to 
something like that? I think the first thing to tell people is that your money is insured up to $250,000. And after what happened this weekend, it looks like the government's going to make sure that your money is insured on top of that. So for regular people, you don't need to be moving your money around to different banks unless you want to get a higher interest on your deposits. And that's something the banks will um, be facing here. So I think that the federal backstop means the balance sheets are not the issue for these banks. It's their profitability that will be in question uh, going forward here. Okay, that's good advice. Everyone is searching for advice right now. Christine <laughs> Romans, we're going to check back in with you at the top sure. of the 8 a.m. hour. Waiting the president to speak in just moments. In the meantime, uh, joining us is Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin. She was on the call with the president, with the Biden administration, I should say, about their Silicon Valley bank decision. Thank you so much for joining us. Lots to discuss, but of course, this is top of mind this morning. What happened in the Biden administration call with members of Congress about the banking fail? What happened last night? Well, we learned about the signature bank failure also added to the uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, assurances were made, obviously, for uh, FDIC, uh, $250,000 secured for everyone. That's already a given. But uh, the administration indicated that beyond that, um, those who had deposits beyond the 250000 would also be kept whole, but not at taxpayers' expense. But this was urgent from the perspective of small businesses, for example, that need to make payroll, et cetera. Um, the message, I think, is no widespread panic necessary. But so I they're do not think, worried about other banks? Um, I think that there might be a handful of other uh, banks out there, uh, but... I don't know for sure. Uh, but I think the issue is that there should be no widespread panic. And, uh, and I think for us in Congress, we need to revisit some of the regulation that was loosened on these regional mid-sized banks uh, not so long ago. I certainly opposed that loosening at the time. You're talking about the Bill 2155 in 2018 that was it really loosened parts of Dodd-Frank for any bank that had less than $250 billion in assets. 17 Democrats voted in support of that. Um, one of them was your colleague, Senator Mark Warner. He was asked yesterday on ABC if he regrets that vote. Listen to what he said. I w wonder what you think. No matter what the capital had been in this bank, if you don't get banking 101 straight, if you don't m manage your interest rate risks, if you've then got to run at $42 billion in a single day, unprecedented. Management didn't get this right. Banking 101, managing interest rate risks. That so is Senator, a you, asset to somebody who's going you to don't regret that vote. Listen, I think that was called the 2155 bill. I think it put in place a appropriate level of regulation on mid-sized banks. Looking at it now. Is there the appropriate amount of regulation on these banks, or would you be in favor of voting to reinstitute things like the stress tests for banks like this? I certainly think moving forward that we need to come back to those questions. Time changes uh, circumstances, and uh, I think it's uh, appropriate for us to reexamine that. You voted. Why did you vote against that legislation in 2018? Were you worried about something like this? You know, I think that uh, an appropriate amount of capitalization and regulation uh, should be required, especially, you know, there was a big lobby to get the community banks out from uh, under the uh, regulation of Dodd-Frank, um, especially the very small ones. But I didn't think that the regional medium-sized banks should really have been a part of that. On the White House's response, is it sufficient so far? 
I think so. The uh, uh, call we had last night uh, involved Treasury, it involved the Fed, it involved FDIC, um, all hands on deck, clearly working all weekend long. Uh, and uh, we'll hear from the president shortly, but I think they've been uh, dealing with this in very expeditious manners. The Treasury Department says it's not a bailout, but it is insulating affluent tech investors. Is it a bailout in your view? Well, I think the question is, will there ever be taxpayer dollars on the line? And so far, we've been told that that's not going to be the case, that they'll figure out uh, uh, within the uh, federal government uh, a, a response that won't require a uh, taxpayer contribution. We'll keep a strong eye on that, I promise you. One of the uh, other things that we wanted to talk to you about is this legislation that you've put forward uh, once again. You're hoping you can get enough votes. You need Republicans on board. But this is on um, trying to ensure the right to an abortion for women in every state. That's right. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe. You've got 47 Democrats supporting it. Joe Manchin and Bob Casey haven't said they are supporting it. You don't know yet how they would vote. So 49 of us, this is the largest number we've ever had on the Women's Health Protection Act when we introduced it last week. And um, so we're showing that the support is growing. We're still talking to other members of the Senate to uh, grow that support. But I think what's really key is after uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned, Half of America lost freedoms and rights. And in my home state of Wisconsin, where there is a near absolute ban on abortion and 13 other states like Wisconsin, we're talking about a crisis situation right now. And uh, we've got to advance uh, not only the Women's Health Protection Act, but we've got to be working on all fronts to assure that uh, uh, women have the rights and freedoms and not fewer than their mothers and grandmothers in America. How is Walgreens' decision, is Walgreens, is Walgreens' decision not to sell medication in certain states, is that playing a role in the legislation that you... Well, certainly the passage of the legislation would address that so that you didn't have to worry about what zip code or what state you were in order to access um, a proven, effective, safe uh, medication uh, for abortions at a certain point in up to a certain point of pregnancy. I think Walgreens messed up in announcing um, how they were going to uh, uh, distribute uh, uh, mifepristone. And I think what they really owe the American public and their customers is clarity. Uh, they received a, a sort of a uh, threatening letter from a variety of Republican uh, state attorneys general uh, kind of bowed to that pressure. They really need to look at the law of each state and be able to make, uh, give a clear message to their customers, the American public, of where people uh, will be able to access that medication. We aren't always as fortunate as we are now to have you in the studio. Thank you. We enjoy Thank having you here. Please come back. Thank you very Thank much. You, Thank Senator. you very yeah. much. And we'll continue to track how this SVB collapse is handled and how Congress is responding to it as well. Right on. Speaking of that, President Biden expected to address the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the government's response. Do that shortly. We're going to speak to Jack Singh, the founder of the tech startup company that primarily used that bank. And what the Manhattan District Attorney is saying about his probe into former President Trump's alleged hush money payments. That is all ahead. Thank you very much. Nice to see you in person. All right, we have new reporting this morning that former President Trump's fixer, his old fixer, Michael Cohen, is going to be meeting with prosecutors in Manhattan today 
They are finalizing their investigation into the hush money payments that were made to the adult film star actress Stormy Daniels. That was in the lead up to the 2016 election. Trump reportedly, Trump did huddle with his legal team at Mar-a-Lago over this weekend after the Manhattan District Attorney's Office invited him to come and testify before the grand jury on his involvement in the matter. Here's how the Manhattan DA over the weekend, Alvin Bragg, described his motivations. We're, we're looking at the, the facts and the law. We follow the facts. Doesn't matter what party you are. Doesn't matter your background. What did you do and what does the law say? Joining us now with his perspective on this is one of Trump's attorneys during his second impeachment trial. You'll recognize him, David Schoen. David, thank you for being here this morning. And we just heard from Trump's attorney who is handling this case here in New York. He was on Good Morning America. I want to show you what he said and have you respond to it. He made this with personal funds to prevent something coming out false, but embarrassing to himself, his family's young son. That's not a campaign finance violation, not by any stretch. So personal funds and personal use of funds, spending to fulfill a commitment, an obligation or an expense of a person that would be existing irrespective of the campaign is not a violation. And well, that's what you have here. David, do you agree with him? Well, that's what Michael Cohen said originally, you know. Um, Listen, the New York law is a bit convoluted, and I think the biggest problem here is the acceptance of the idea of indicting a former president, unprecedented move, uh, with a law that's sort of a couple steps removed. In other words, the law here makes it a misdemeanor to falsify uh, business records with the intent to defraud. So the idea there would be that uh, payments were falsified, that were made to Michael Cohen to reimburse him for payments to Stormy Daniels. Uh, Ms. Daniels. Um, and then it becomes a felony under 175.10 under New York law if there was the intent to defraud to commit or conceal another crime. And so we're a couple of steps removed here. It's a fundamental um, assumption or principle of prosecution, both federally and in New York state, that we don't prosecute unless the prosecutor is convinced that he would get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a very dubious theory of prosecution here. It's not the kind of case in which to indict a former president of the United States. And by the way, I think the political fallout plays both ways. There's an election blog piece by Rick Hazen, who's no Trump lover, who says this is not a prosecution to bring. You risk making President Trump a martyr by doing this kind of thing. And the public is already so skeptical of these kinds of things. I think it's a big mistake to, handle, uh, to bring this prosecution. Do you think he is going to be indicted, though? Um, I've said all along, you know, again, I'm a worst case scenario person. I think right now we're seeing politically a rush to be the first uh, prosecutor to indict a former president. So I worry about that. The political considerations play into it, which, again, is fundamentally against the ABA standards for federal prosecutions or any kind of prosecution, including state prosecutions. Um, I worry, though, there's a race now between New York and Georgia to be the first one. I think it sets a Terrible, terrible, dangerous uh, precedent. Sorry, Dave, go ahead. Is that a longer way of saying yes, you do think he will be indicted? I, you know, look, I'm, I don't have a crystal ball. I worry that he will be indicted, and I think that's bad for the country. Um, if I were a betting person, I would say I think yes, for political reasons and not consistent with the law. One thing that we've reported on is that the DA's office offered Trump to come in and testify himself, to speak to the grand jury. That was how it signaled that an indictment was likely likely. He huddled with his team over the weekend. If you had been in that room, would you advise to have advised him to go before them? <laughs> uh, I would not, frankly. I'm not sure, by the way. I saw Mr. Tecapino on the piece. I'm not sure he'll handle it if it goes forward, but he's certainly you know, representing the president now. He's representing him in another matter in New York, former president, in another matter in New York. Um, 
But uh, listen, you know, lawyers can differ over this kind of thing. New York, uh, this is part of their system. They offer the subject or, um, of the grand jury investigation an opportunity to testify, and then there are certain immunity factors that play into it. I would not, because I think there's an agenda here, and I think there's a great risk of um, sort of perverting anything that he says in there yeah. to maybe come up with another crime. Even it, it, Trump seems to have this idea sometimes, and I've been hearing from some people around him that he, maybe he could go in there and change their mind. Do you think that's unlikely? I, I think that's unlikely. I know what you're talking about. He is a very persuasive speaker, and I know that sometimes there is this uh, thinking about changing people's minds. But if there's a political agenda, agenda at work here, and I believe there is, then I don't think that's very likely. I don't think, frankly, that the facts matter. And again, you, you have to think about all of these considerations, including the level of evidence here and the source of the evidence. The case starts and stops with Michael, Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming you don't think he's a very good star witness for them. Well, he's got problems. I mean, listen, every criminal case, generally the government witness has a problem. But here he's on record with the Federal Election Commission, the New York Times and elsewhere saying that this absolutely was not any kind of hush money that the President Trump didn't know about the payments that he made and so on. I understand he changed his position and people do that. But that's not the kind of witness that we indict a former president uh, behind. We'll find out. David Chung, thank you so much for that analysis. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Morning, everyone. Top of the hour. We're glad you're with us this Monday. Wow, what a weekend it was. Two different banks failing back to back. The Biden administration trying to ease panic and prevent an all-out financial crisis. The president will speak a little bit later this morning at the White House as the federal government steps in to protect and shore up America's banking system. We're watching that very closely as we look at live pictures of the White House. And we're going to talk to the CEO of a tech startup after his company's primary, primary bank suddenly collapsed. We're also going to speak with Shark Tank at star and investment mogul Kevin O'Leary. How concerned should we be about the economy? Plus this. And the Oscar goes to... <sighs> Navalny. About as well-deserved as it gets. CNN's documentary on Alexei Navalny, who is in prison in Russia, took home an Oscar last night. The director is going to join us live to talk about this moment, what it means for Alexei Navalny, Putin's jailed critic. We do begin, though, with the Biden administration trying to prevent financial contagion after two banks failed back to back in the last three days. A live look now at the White House, where the president will speak this morning as the federal government takes emergency action. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed on Friday. It became the largest U.S. bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis. Regulators also shut down Signature Bank based here in New York. We learned about that late last night. They said Signature Bank was on the brink of collapse and threatened the broader banking system. So at the direction of the president and the Treasury Secretary, the FDIC is now stepping in. They are guaranteeing that customers, depositors of both Signature and SVB will be able to get their money back starting today. The government is also ensuring emergency loans to other banks in case they need a liquidity bridge. Wall Street, very concerned. Regional bank stocks are tumbling. Take a look at shares of First Republic, off more than 60 percent in pre-market trading. Uh, there are big questions about other banks right now. Let's bring in senior White House correspondent MJ Lee, who joins us. So the president will speak in a little less than an hour. 
do we know what he's going to say? Is this about just reassuring the American people this Monday morning, or are we, we going to hear new announcements? Well, Poppy, that is certainly going to be the overarching goal is to try to reassure the American public that there is no need for a panic, that there's not going to be some broader domino effect after we saw Silicon Valley banks collapse. Uh, you know, we saw this all hands on deck effort over the weekend to try to contain the fallout. And that's why we saw this dramatic announcement last night that said that all depositors will have access to their funds starting today and that there's going to be a new uh, emergency lending program created by the federal reserve so that other banks that are eligible can have access to these extra funds. You know, in his remarks this morning, which is expected within the next hour or so, uh, we will probably hear the president echoing some of what we heard from top U.S. officials over the weekend as they try to be uh, reassuring to the American public, uh, saying that the U.S. economy is a lot more resilient now than back around the 2008 financial crisis, uh, that the reforms that were put in place after that financial crisis will work. Work, and just a reassurance that the federal government is committed to protecting in particular small businesses, because remember, small businesses really made up a huge bulk of the depositors uh, with Silicon Valley Bank. You know, the president said in a statement last night that he's going to hold everyone responsible for what happened accountable. So we'll see whether he gets into this in his speech uh, in terms of who he finds responsible and what accountability looks like. But Poppy, I think it is very clear that in the coming days, and weeks, there are going to be some very serious conversations about some of these financial regulations that were loosened and relaxed over the course of the last few years and whether they need to be strengthened and brought back, uh, clearly given the fact that we've now seen three serious bank failures over the course of just mm -hmm. one week, Poppy. Yeah, uh, and that all fell within the size that was given more lax regulation after that vote. MJ Lee, thanks very much. Also this morning, we're getting new insight from actually inside Silicon Valley Bank. CNN's Matt Egan was speaking with employees who worked there, one who worked in asset management, and told him, quote, it was absolutely idiotic that the CEO publicly acknowledged the extent of the financial troubles before lining up support to ride out the storm. CNN's Christine Romans has been covering this all weekend, ever since this happened on Friday. MJ is right. There will be a lot of focus sure. on the rollback of regulations, but also the scrutiny on the Federal Reserve. And what are they going to do, you know, a week and a half from now when right. they're meeting? Because the interest rates is a major factor in all of this. So there'll be scrutiny on management of the company. And I think that's what Matt Egan was getting to there, that management of the company should have been able to raise $2 billion without sending the whole thing down the tubes, right? So that's what the complaints are inside the company. Uh, this management should have been able to manage um, interest rate risk, which um, is how you run a bank. You manage interest rate risk, and they did not do that properly. And then what kind of pressure, to your point, does this put on the Federal Reserve? Goldman Sachs this weekend, in a note to clients, said they don't think the Fed's going to raise interest rates. At all. At all. Because there's stress in the banking system right now, and we know that this bank broke and other banks have broken because of uh, the rapid pace of in but interest rate increases. Is and that good, management. though, for consumers that they, they're not going to do that, that it doesn't look like it? It is unless inflation is a real bad problem and this delays their ability to get inflation under control. So it's it's a bunch of tough choices over at the Fed. The, the reality is, I mean, Gary Becker, the CEO, was also until a few days ago on the board of the San Francisco Federal Reserve. Right. You banks have to know how to manage interest rate risk. You have to know that if you're holding on to a lot of long term bonds and securities and the rates are lower when you're holding them, people are going to want ones with higher rates and your assets are going to be less attractive. You have to know that. And still the question is, it could 
have such broad implications that it could dictate Fed policy because of what appears to be mismanagement. One bank's management, fatal flaw, fatal flaw of judgment, um, could have implications for the entire banking system. And you're right, and and the Federal Reserve. That's remarkable, isn't it? That's a huge... Uh, the only tool the Fed has to fight inflation may now be curbed because of what this bank chose to do and not do. Or the Fed could choose to go ahead and continue to raise interest rates. And this could be, you know, this could be all just a tempest in a teapot right here. And then they've solved the problem with with SVB. But look, we've got stress in the banking sector today. No question. You've got major banks are down pre-market trading. Some of these um, mid-sized regional banks are down a lot. First Republic is down a lot. Um, First Republic, it's interesting because it actually got some Fed backing this weekend and also backing from J.P. Morgan Chase. And I bank at First Republic. And I got an email yesterday Me from too. the CEO who said, oh, by the way, you know, we have plenty of capital. Everything's fine here. But, you know, people get nervous. The contagion is hard to measure Contagion is really hard to measure in the banking sector, and I think that's why the, why Panic. the, why the yeah. White House was so careful to go with a muscular approach here this weekend to try to prevent any contagion. Before yeah. we let you go, can I ask you about the p- potential acquisition of SVB? Because they were asking people, they were taking bids. Yeah. Do we know where we are with that? So there was an auction yesterday. They did not get um, a match, I guess. Uh, you know, the terms were not attractive enough for a, a bank to take it. But they did sell, uh, HSBC is buying the U.K., component of this company. Um, so there is a deal that is on the table for that. We'll watch and see. I mean, the cleanest thing would be for another bank to buy this bank. But right now, the government is the government is running it. People, if you bank at SVB, you're going to have your money is going to be available when it opens this morning, um, you know, later this morning. So we'll we'll watch all of that. Yeah. And also this morning, President Biden's going to come out and say the U.S. banking system is safe and secure, trying to reassure people for that panic and that contagion. Christine Romans, You've been on all morning. I feel like you're just here with us at the desk permanently. You're just going to move in. Lucky me. All right. Thank you, Christine. Thanks, Christine. And we'll be following. We'll carry the president live for you. Meantime, startups and small businesses are barely hanging on as they wait to get more information on how they actually access or assess the funds from Silicon Valley Bank. The Biden administration promised that customers will have access to their money starting today. Again, we're going to hear from the president uh, in just moments. And again, we'll carry it for you live. But I want to bring in now Jack Singh. He is the founder of the startup tech Avahi. Uh, incorporated. Uh, the company's primary bank was SVB, and Jack has already had to pay empl- employees with his personal funds. Thank you for joining us. Sorry that you had to deal with this. I have to ask you first off, have you checked? Do you have access to your funds yet? Uh, we don't. Um, we're still waiting to hear back on how to access them, whether it's through Silicon Valley Bank account or the new entity that the government has created. Um, we understand that they should be available today, but we don't know how to access them just yet. We don't have any instructions around it. At the moment, what are your concerns? I think the concerns are how soon we would be able to actually access and then move the account, the, the funds to the accounts of our choosing. The other one is obviously with, with this happening, um, what's the next bank, what's the right bank to pick uh, so that we are not in a similar situation again as well. Uh, and then we're, we're, we've been in uh, damage control internally, just talking to employees, keeping them aware of the situation, customers um, and vendors. Uh, and that's just the immediate uh, or the weekend stuff that we've been able to focus on. We haven't thought about the long-term repercussions of this just yet. Let's talk a little bit more about that because I'm sure you're concerned about the, the seriousness, how serious this could be for your company. Will you potentially need to continue to dip into personal funds? Are you going to furlough or lay off employees? 
I think those are all, all, all the things that are top of mind right now. Um, we, we've been fortunate enough right now to sustain the, the first payroll. Uh, but if, if we don't have access to the funds, that is a very real conversation that we would be having between our management team um, over the course of the next month or so. I, I think with, with what happened, it's, it's just, uh, uh, we feel like it's, it wasn't our responsibility as depositors to maintain faith in the bank, but it should be the bank's responsibility through sound judgment to take care of the funds that we deposited with them in which Silicon Valley Bank failed to do so. So what do you say to SVB if you had the opportunity to speak with them, someone who could hear what you had to say and, and, and make a difference in, in what's happening to you? I think that the, the, I mean, we are here now for us, it was really looking at um, more communication from them once this happened, but also ensuring that the wherever these employees go in future, that they learn from this and they don't let this happen again uh, at different banks that they work at. It's a personal question, but and I'm not sure if you can ask generally, how much did you have at SVB? Uh, we had substantially over the $250,000 limit, and that is where the concern was. But, but again, that, that fund, those funds were, were there for us to do our day-to-day -day operations. And uh, we, we are a profitable startup, but again, at the same time, majority of those funds were sitting there for expenses. Uh, being the nature of the startup is sometimes you have to sell your lunch to buy dinner, um, and we are in, in, in similar shape right now. Sometimes you have to sell your lunch to buy dinner. It's, yeah. What do you say to, to, to people who say that this is, this is a bailout? Do you think it's a bailout? I've been having those discussions and defending that this isn't a bailout. It isn't bailing out the bank. It is bailing out the depositors, the hardworking depositors, the employees of those who are banking with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, there are many people who are living paycheck to paycheck. And if, if this was delayed any further... Um, I can't imagine what the ramifications for a lot of those folks would be. I understand that uh, your son, who's six, year old, six years old, offered to help you. Can you tell our viewers how he offered to help? Yes. Uh, we were, uh, as, as the day um, happened on Thursday, I was stressing out, having a couple of conversations around on the phone and my wife, and he was there at home um, he wasn't feeling well, so he had a day off from school. And he overheard me. He saw me stressed out. And I was about to head out of the house. He uh, sort of ran inside his room, and he has a small little wallet. He brought that over to me, the entire wallet. And he's like, hey, Dada, this is uh, a little bit of money for you. Hopefully, it will help you. And it was just touching. And uh, I felt bad that I had to rush out of the house without acknowledging him properly. But when I came back, I did let him know that um, the money helped. Mm. Jack, um, thank you for, for that, and thanks for bringing this home to our viewers, just how personal it is for you and for many people around the country. Appreciate it. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think Poppy um, and Caitlin, what he said, sometimes you have to sell your lunch to pay for your dinner. And then the gentleman you interviewed earlier who said, I'm, not, I'm just a toy store owner. I'm not an economist. I mean, that's, you know, that's real. That's the real stuff. Yeah. The kid, yeah. the yeah. six-year-old, my gosh, yeah. that ran to him to, to try to help him. This is what a lot of these companies are going through, but they're going to be okay, thanks yeah. to this morning, the government stepping in. Meantime, former Vice President Mike Pence made his strongest comments yet at this dinner in D.C. over the weekend about 
former President Donald Trump's role in the January 6th attack, how the former running mates back and forth could affect 2024. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan just announced he'll be watching the race from the sidelines, and he's here in studio to talk about that and a lot more. All right, this morning, former Vice President Mike Pence making some of the most blistering comments he's made so far about his former boss. This was at a dinner in Washington, D.C. over the weekend. No cameras were in the room, we should know. But Pence said, quote, about January 6th, this. President Trump was wrong. I had no right to overturn the election, and his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day. I know that history will hold Donald Trump accountable. Just to give you a sense of how remarkable those comments are coming from Pence, this is what he said about January 6th back in 2021. I know the media wants to distract from the Biden administration's failed agenda by focusing on one day in January. They want to use that one day to try and demean uh, the the character and intentions of 74 million Americans who believed we could be strong again and prosperous again and supported our administration in 2016 and, and 2020. This as several Republican candidates or potential candidates for the 2024 Republican nomination, including Pence and Trump, are traveling around the country. They're speaking with primary voters. Joining us now is someone who will not be in that pool, former Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan. He has said he is not running for the reelection. I want to talk about that decision and what went into that. But on what Pence said, do you think he's right that history is going to hold Trump accountable for January 6th? Well, he's absolutely right. I've been saying this since January 6th, uh, and I'm really glad that he came out and said it. I mean, I have a lot of respect for Mike Pence. I think he did the right thing on January 6th, and I'm glad he's now speaking out more strongly than he did before. Uh, Some of the criticism is, well, you know, he's not testifying. He didn't testify before January 6th. He's not. He's so far trying to not fully testify, give a complete testimony to Jack Smith, the special counsel. I think it's really important that we have as much transparency as possible and that we get to the bottom of it. But uh, look, a lot of people have been afraid to say anything about it. And I think the fact that Mike Pence is getting stronger and speaking out more is a good thing. Uh, And, you know, I I worked very closely with him uh, the whole time he was vice president, all during COVID as I led the nation's governors. Um, I think he's doing the right thing. And uh, I'm going to be with Mike Pence in uh, in Iowa this weekend. Sorry. It sounds like you think he should testify. Um, I don't know whether he should testify or not. I'm not his lawyer, okay. and I don't know what the re- details of the request are. But I think it's good that he, he is uh, very pretty strongly saying that Donald Trump should be held accountable. Now, why the change from him? I mean, Caitlin was, was at the gridiron dinner, and she heard the comments, and she said the room, usually it's ha, 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 laugh, laugh, yeah. laugh, and then everyone sort of, were you at the dinner? No, I've been there before, but I missed this one. So then, but then why the change for him, considering what he said, what he fought the special counsel, he didn't uh, speak to the January 6th committee, um, and he also praised the media, is my understanding from Caitlin. Why the change for Mike Pence all of a sudden? You said he's getting stronger, but what does that mean? Look, I think uh, Pence has been one of the few that have been, you know, on, he, he stood up pretty strongly on January 6th. Uh, he, his life was being threatened. He was in the garage of the Capitol, and then he came back and did his job, uh, which, as people were chanting, hang Mike Pence. So not the first time he's stood up, in my opinion, but uh, I, I don't know why the, the morphing, but I think he's it's now more and more people are starting. I've been saying this for two years, but more and more people are starting to say this was wrong. We need to move in a different direction away from Trump. And Mike Pence is one of those people. Can we talk a bit about the direction you think the party should go in? Caitlin anchored State of the Union yesterday and did a really fascinating interview with a name maybe not as familiar to many 
in the party as you, but Vivek Ramaswamy, who's an entrepreneur um, who is well-known in conservative circles, um, who just said that your party's just got it wrong on the vision. Here's what he told Caitlin. And I think the, the opportunity for the GOP now is not just to complain about wokeness or gender ideology or climate ideology, but actually to go upstream and fill that black hole with a vision of American national identity that runs so deep that it dilutes these agendas to irrelevance and actually unifies us as a country. And I'm running because I believe genuinely that I'm the candidate best positioned to actually deliver national unity by reawakening that shared American identity. I should note he's written even books on on wokeness, but but that's the argument he makes that we as some of the loudest voices like Trump, DeSantis are focusing on the wrong things if we want to win. Well, I agree with that completely. It's it's what I've been saying for eight years, uh, and it's what I spoke about at the Reagan Institute about a week after the 2020 election. It's what I spoke about at the Reagan Library this uh, this summer. Uh, we've got to focus on a hopeful, more positive vision for America. We've got to, uh, you know, successful politics is about addition and multiplication. It's not about subtraction and division. And all, our party's been doing a lot of dividing and subtracting. And uh, we haven't focused on the things that the average American cares about. And it's what, you know, the, my entire efforts have been about. People but that's are, what's so confounding for people that you're not running. Yeah, well, uh, you know, there's a there's a whole lot of people, I think, that are moving into that lane that are starting to say those kinds of things that maybe they weren't speaking out as loudly as I was. But I'm glad they are now. I, I said a couple of years ago, I said I felt like I was in a lifeboat by myself and yeah. it was a, the uh, SS Titanic Trump was was going by. More and more people are jumping off the boat. What? We now need a bigger boat. You you've ruled out running for the GOP nomination. You haven't totally ruled out an independent bid. It's very hard. I don't have to tell you. Yeah, that. no, it's ne- but it's nearly impossible. And it, it wasn't something that I'm thinking about or really considering. But uh, they you know, there was a hypothetical. Would you would you rule that out? It was like, well, you, you never know. So yeah. what is your role in 2024? Are you a foe to Trump? Are you just I'd like to make sure that the party does not nominate Donald Trump, uh, because I think that's really bad for the Republican Party and bad for the country and probably bad for Donald Trump. Uh, So I'm going to try to see if we can't find the best possible candidate that can appeal to a broader group of people and that not only can win a primary, which everybody seems to be focused on, but that can have a message that appeals to a broader group of people and could actually, you know, win a a general election in November. It seems that more people who are in in the party who are trying to sink, what do you call it, the SS Trump, right, are trying to sink the SS Trump, right, rather than keep it afloat as had been previously, right, in recent history. So then who do you think among the group now or potentially who would be the best, who is the best chance? It's a great question. Nobody's really risen up, in my opinion. I can't point to one person and say, oh, I'm really excited. This is the one. But we have a long time to play out. First of all, we don't even know who's going to run. There's only a couple of candidates in the race. And we've got a long time until uh, until the first primary takes place. How how do you feel about the Ron DeSantis approach vis-a-vis private corporations. I'm just fascinated by the fact that is the GOP now the, you know, the company of big government and let's get entangled with how corporations operate? Or is that just a one-off with we want to punish Disney for their stance Which on Which they criticized. Yeah, yeah. On well, I mean, I spoke, spoke out against a couple of those steps that Ron DeSantis took. I mean, look, he's, uh, 
He's got every right to have his opinions. I think he's out there making a case. He's ca- capturing a lot of attention. Uh, but I, I, I don't. It didn't seem like uh, you know small government conservatism to have a, no. a governor you know ordering businesses to uh, agree with him, or he's going to put them out of business. <laughs> Can I ask you one thing before you go about Nikki Haley? She is on the campaign trail. She is in the race. She suggested raising the retirement age mm. for beneficiaries, people who are in their twenties now. Says that they should raise it. You agree with her? I didn't hear her say that, but uh, obviously entitlements are an issue that they're going to have to debate over the next year. It's uh, something we've got to figure out, but no, I'm not sure I agree with that. You don't agree with that? No. Why not? I just don't think it's the right thing to do. All right. Well, (laughs) that was a fascinating conversation. I mean, that answers that. (laughs) (laughs) When you've said enough, we'll leave it there. I think, Governor, it's it's interesting that, you know, People like you who are considered to be sort of traditional conservatives outside of the MAGA wing of the party, it's disappointing to, you know, moderates or people who are in the center that you're not running. Well, thank, thank you very much. I, I say I come from the Republican wing of the Republican Party. Yeah. We're, we're going to hopefully get back on track. Yeah. We'll find thank out. You, Governor. Thank, thank you, Governor you. Hogan. All right. Well, this is a very exciting night for all of us here at CNN. If you were watching the Oscars, you saw a CNN first. The film Navalny has won an Academy Award for Best Feature Documentary. Fresh off the win, we'll speak with the director, Daniel Roar. <laughs> Look, <laughs> Look at, at that. that. That's not even a humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> and the Oscar goes to <sighs> Navalny. <laughs> That is a night I can tell you we were all praying for here at CNN for so many reasons beyond this network. CNN film documentary Navalny winning best documentary feature last night at the Oscars. It is the first Oscar win for CNN. The documentary film released last year explores the attempted assassination of Russian occupation leader Alexei Navalny and who was behind it. Joining us now is Daniel Rohr. He is the director of the Academy Award-winning film. It sounds so good to say, right? The Academy Award-winning CNN film, Navalny. Still in his tuck shirt, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't slept. I have been up all night, and I was just about to go to bed when I remembered I had to speak with you guys, or I got to speak with you this morning, and I jumped out of bed, put my shirt back on, and here I am. Well, look, I was saying in the intro, it's about so much more than, yes, it's a big deal for CNN and and all of you to win, but this is about imprisoned Navalny. This is about what it means to stand up for what is right and justice and the consequences of that in Putin's Russia. That's exactly right. I mean, last night was extraordinary for my colleagues and I. It was amazing recognition of the work that we did. But more than anything, it was a megaphone for Alexei Navalny and his plight. The world heard the name Navalny last night. And uh, for me, that is the greatest prize. And they heard his wife was on stage last night. Let's listen to her message. My husband is in prison just for telling the truth. My husband is in prison just for defending democracy. Uh, Alexei, I am dreaming the day when you will be free and our country will be free. Uh, Stay strong, my love. An important message coming from you, from the wife, but this is more than just about you. It's about the family and it's also about freedom and democracy. It's a big it's bigger than just that. 
you know, it's it's about uh, a vision for what Russia can be. Right now, Russia is experiencing, you know, its darkest moment in the last 25 years with this brutal war in Ukraine. And what Alexei Navalny offers for millions and millions of people is a flickering light of hope. And I think that for his supporters, especially in Russia, um, you know, this win is meaningful for them. This win reminds the world that we have not forgotten about Alexei Navalny and that his plight is in the headlines. Um, and that is extraordinarily meaningful. And Daniel, what's remarkable is the Kremlin is already weighing in on what you have there. The fact that you what won. What did they say? The fact that you won this, we heard from Dmitry Peskov, who, as you know, is Putin's spokesperson. He said yeah. uh, he was asked about it at a conference call with reporters. He said, although I have not watched it, meaning the doc, he said, I dare to assume that there is a certain element of politicization of the topic here. Hollywood also sometimes does not shun the topic of politicization, excuse me, at its work. What, what do you make that comment from the Kremlin? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear it. I actually think Peskov has seen it, and I think he probably really liked it, and he's obviously not allowed to say that. Um, but look, these are guys who lie and lie and lie. Uh, if they don't call it politicization, they'll call it, you know, a, a CIA project or is financed by the State Department. This is what they do. They deflect and they make things up. So I'm not surprised that they would try and write it off. But look, they can't write this off. This is the Academy Award for Best Feature Documentary. That is a huge honor. And as I said earlier, a huge megaphone. So while Dmitry Peskov and the Kremlin can try their best to minimize it and call it politicization, that's not what this is. This is recognition for, for filmmaking, for the work of my colleagues and I, and for Alexei Navalny's courage and bravery. Do you still believe that Alexei Navalny may be president of Russia one day? You know, things seem dark right now. There's no doubt about that. But I think Alexei's core value or one of his core orientations in life is towards optimism. Yeah. And something that he asks of his supporters is to be optimistic. If we don't have optimism, what do we have? And so in the spirit of Alexei, I say absolutely. There is certainly a chance that yeah. he will survive this ordeal and have a big impact on the future of Russia and Russian politics. Before you go, I just want to give a shout out to one of our own, our CNN Films team here, led by Amy Antelis, Courtney Sexton. I mean, this is, I'm sure you were with them all night, but this is, you know, Amy and Courtney and that team bet on you guys. And what does it feel like for all of you? And show us that trophy. <laughs> yeah, how you know. is it? <laughs> A lot heavier than you'd think. It's extraordinary. The team at CNN Films believed in this project from day one. So many other studios and companies said to us, it sounds amazing, but we're just not interested in taking on the Kremlin. We're, we're, we're afraid of being hacked. We're afraid of what could possibly happen. We needed to find special partners who were unafraid to walk through the fire with us. Mm -hmm. And in CNN Films and Amy Intellis and Courtney Sexton and Ryan Robinson and Alex Hannibal, that's exactly who we found. And from day one, we were lockstep. And, and CNN, the entire organization, had the courage to pursue this. And that's why we're here. And so this is for all of them and for CNN Films and for all yeah. of our friends at CNN. Takes courage to do great things and change the world. You guys all had it. And we're grateful to you. Daniel Orr, thank you so thank much. You thank you. Daniel thank says you. that you can just wave that in Hollywood right now, probably and beyond, and just get, <laughs> it's like a magic wand. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> get into any place. All right, get some sleep, Daniel. Anything. Thank you. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Congratulations.
And if you haven't seen it and you want to watch, I mean, how could you not off of what you just heard there? It's the Academy Award-winning film, CNN film, Navalny. It is streaming now on HBO Max. All right. Also this morning, we are tracking the major news happening here in the U.S. and it's having impacts around the world. I look at the stock futures this morning. The White House is closely watching these. I can tell you how the markets are going to react any moment now to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, which was shut down yesterday. The president is going to speak soon. and We have new CNN reporting about what he's expected to say. And guess what? It's time, right, to fill in your March Madness bracket. So... Is it possible, is it possible to pick a perfect match, a perfect, whatever it's called. Bracket. 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 There you go. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm a little tired this morning. Harry Inton is more in this morning's number. <laughs> oh, my, what are you doing? He's dribbling. Oh, my gosh. Bring a real basketball. Nevada is ready to host a championship party. The conference's two signature basketball programs. Now it's up to the player to deliver a real show. This is Las Vegas. Tabellas drives and Etienne scores. That's what Azulis Tabellas needs to do. Just Nothing like the sound of the sneakers on that court, the hardwood. The games will come down to the wire, and as you put together your March Madness bracket, like... Yours is empty. Yeah, Mine's filled out. <laughs> it already has a winner on it. Humble bragging here, like we're doing right now. At least they are. Did you do yours yet? What do you think? No. <laughs> so you're probably thinking, what are the odds of it being perfect, like me? Harry Enten has this morning's number. <laughs> is a perfect bracket possible? Uh, well, Don, uh, this morning's number is one in nine quintillion. That is the chance of getting a perfect bracket if you pick randomly. So very difficult. There are 18 zeros in that. I had to look that up. But of course, if you pick some skill with some skill, you have a 1 in 120 billion chance. So perhaps a little bit better than the quintillion, but still 1 in 120 billion. Quite low odds. I want to kind of put that into some perspective for you, right? What are the chance of some happy events happening? Okay, one in 120 billion if you pick the perfect NCAA bracket. One in 303 million of winning the Mega Millions, which of course is complete chance. Or one in 650,000 for a royal poker flush. So by far, the chance of a perfect NCAA bracket is the lowest. You have a better chance of playing the lottery and winning hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars that way. And has there ever been one? Well, the answer is no, not that we know of. The closest ever was in 2019. There was a perfect through round two of six. So that gives you an understanding. Very, very difficult. In 2022, there were no perfect brackets after round one. How long could it be until we get a perfect bracket? Could be hundreds, if not thousands of years, guys. Well, perfection is overrated. And people, despite that, are still clearly very hopeful because, Harry, a lot of people do fill out brackets. A lot, a lot of people do. So this gives you an understanding of how popular it is. There were 17.3 million brackets in 2022 that were filled out on ESPN.com alone. The winner, this gives you an understanding of how good you actually have to be, picked 50 of the 63 games right. And that 17.3 million brackets filled out, compare that to the 16.6 million who watched the Oscars in 2022. And the idea of filling out a bracket has become more and more popular, at least on ESPN.com. Look at this. In 2007, there were just 3.3 million that jumped up to 6.5 in 2012, 13.3 in 2017. And last year, look at that, 17.7 million. I wouldn't be surprised if coming up this year, we get even 20 million and then millions more in other places, guys. What's bigger, a quintillion or a gazillion? 
I, I think that my ego is a gazillion while your ego is a contillion. I'm not quite sure which is bigger, though. Ooh, so we snap. can figure it out together. We'll do a check on those after you. your brackets fail. I'm not even going there. Yeah, thanks, Harry. See you. Bye bye. All right, in a little less than an hour, we're going to start to get a sense of how investors are feeling about not one, but two banks collapsing. Markets open at 9.30. President Biden is also expected to address all of this soon. We're going to talk about what it means for you, though. What it means for your money with no one better than Shark Tank judge Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful. So I've got to ask All right, you're looking at live pictures there. That's the Roosevelt Room of the White House, where any moment now, President Biden is going to come through that door by the Oval Office and approach that lectern and talk about what we've all been talking about all morning, the collapse of SVB and the closing of a second bank yesterday. As CNN is now getting new information about what President Biden plans to say in his remarks any moment now, MJ Lee at the White House says he is going to emphasize that the U.S. banking system is, quote, safe. We are also just a short time away from the opening bell of Wall Street. Well, we'll get the real reaction to what is going on. And that's when we'll get to start to see the sense of how investors are feeling about the federal government's handling after they stepped in in an extraordinary way when it comes to the nation's banking system. That is after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday and the subsequent closing of Signature Bank just yesterday. For more on this amazing events that have transpired over the last several days, I want to bring in Shark Tank Judge Kevin O'Leary, who is the chairman of O'Leary Ventures and is here to join us. What are you hoping to hear from, from President Biden? Well, I think I know what he's going to say. Um, I, think, I don't think he'll say it in the way I'm suggesting, but what effectively happened over the weekend is that he nationalized the American banking system. It's no longer a risk it's no longer private in any sense. It is now backstopped by the government, ultimately the taxpayer. So it doesn't matter how bad you are as a bank manager, and a good example is what happened at Silicon Valley Bank. That was a combination of a negligent board of directors and idiot management. That's a very powerful cocktail when put together, and it completely wiped out that bank. And that's what should have happened. And we knew before the weekend started that every account with $250,000 or less was insured and anything beyond that, which is generally business accounts or sophisticated investors, was not. But that's all changed. Now you have no risk in any bank anytime, and you as the taxpayer bear that going forward. When we spoke on Friday, you said, I said, how big a deal is this, Kevin? And we were texting. You said next week the real trouble starts when they can't make payroll. Now it looks like they will be making payroll, I would imagine. So what do you think? Do you think that um, maybe the, you know, the pressure is off now, that things are going to go back to normal, or is there still more fallout here? No, they'll never go back to normal. Two things are going to happen. This, this quick move, this policy decision, was to try and stop a run on small banks, midterm, mid-sized banks. I don't think long-term that's going to work, because why would you take even 1% of risk keeping your money, or at least all of it, in a small regional bank? You're going to diversify. And I think that's the first lesson that wasn't being uh, adhered to, is when you have liquid assets you want to make sure it's diversified and the rule we've put in place for our portfolio companies is no more than 20 percent in any one financial institution because you never know where the black swan is swimming in other words every single institution has an idiot manager you big ones small ones that's been proven by history you just don't know where they are and that's the same for every sector of the economy but the banking system's different we have 11 sectors in our economy 
the banking system, financial services, is one of them. But it services all other 10. So what's really happening when the president steps out in a few moments is he's basically saying, look, I can't take this risk anymore. I'm just going to nationalize the whole thing. And that's the way we should look at banking going forward. Nothing more than highly regulated utilities. And that has profound impacts for you as an investor. If you thought putting your money into bank stocks was a good idea, you should change your mind this morning forever. And should you own bank bonds? Never. You were taught that lesson over the weekend. If you owned equity in Silicon Valley Bank, it's worthless. If you yeah, own the bonds, but it's Kevin, worthless. I, Kevin, I, I, so I who, think... Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, Kevin. I just I do want to push back on that because you've got to differentiate between the small and medium sized banks that were given more lax requirements in that 2018 legislation and the big guys, because the big guys closed up on Friday and there's a flight to safety to J.P. Morgan, to Citigroup, et cetera. That doesn't mean they're you know, you, you should not assume that just because they're big, they can't fail. Managers make mistakes all no, the but time. They are held it's your to behavior. Higher, wait, wait. But they are held to stress test requirements, higher capital and liquidity requirements because of Dodd-Frank. That didn't get diminished for those big ones. And you should assume that stage is going to be lifted even higher on them. So they're going to be even more regulated as they become more concentrated and far less profitable. That's my point. This really does make you think about owning bank stocks long term. I think they'll be underperforming the index for decades to come. That's my personal opinion. But it's the behavior of you as an investor in the actual accounts. If you're a business, you can't put it all in one financial institutions. Certainly, everybody learned that lesson over the weekend. So diversification is going to matter. But this has fundamentally changed the way you should look at banking, because I'm not really comfortable that all of a sudden we've de-risked everybody all of the time. It was a good idea to de-risk $250,000 and make more sophisticated investors think about their behavior and how they should put their capital to work, get diversity. You don't have to do that anymore, according to what the president's going to say. You have zero risk, and that has consequences. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And this is going to be very expensive for shareholders of banks long term. All right. I would never put my money into a bank stock ever again. Oh, wow. Kevin O'Leary. Kevin, I uh, always appreciate your perspective. We've got to run because we're going to get to the president. It's going to speak soon. We've got to get our quick break in. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Good Thanks, luck. Kevin. Thank we'll you. be right back. And somehow I ended up here on Hollywood's biggest stage. For all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight, <laughs> this is a beacon of hope and possibilities. This is proof that dreams dream big and dreams do come true. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amazing moments all night last night at the Oscars. So meaningful for everyone and so representative of the talent of the Asian community. Um, it was great to see. Mm -hmm. What a night. Yeah. So thanks for being with us. A very Here's busy morning. Let's get straight to CNN Newsroom as the president prepares to speak on the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.